0: This episode is brought to you by 80,000 Hours. There's no shortage of pressing problems at this moment in history. And if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're the kind of person who wants to have a disproportionate positive impact with their life. But how? You could volunteer your time, you could donate money to important causes, but arguably your greatest resource is your career. Your career is on average 80,000 hours long. That's 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year for 40 years. That's how this episode's sponsor got its name. 80,000 Hours is a non-profit that aims to help people have a positive impact with their career. I first encountered 80,000 Hours all the way back in 2016 at Australia's first EAGX conference in Melbourne, EA standing for Effective Altruism. Rob Wiblin, the Director of Research for 80,000 Hours and host of the 80,000 Hours podcast and a previous guest of this podcast was leading a career advice session at the conference. The session helped us think about how to have High impact career. It struck me then, as it still does today, how logical 80,000 hours framework is and how thoughtful their advice. Their research has been developed rigorously over the past 10 years alongside academics at Oxford University, and it's a refreshing alternative to the trite, follow your passion kind of career advice that gets doled out today. Here's the kicker everything they provide is free, they're a non profit, and their only aim is to help you find a fulfilling, high impact career. So go to 80,000hours.org slash Joe Walker, that's 80000hours, H-O-U-R-S, and Joe spelled J-O-E, to be sent a free copy of their in-depth career guide, which aims to help you learn about what makes for a high-impact career, get new ideas for impactful paths, and make a new plan based on what you've learned and put it into action. So head to 80,000hours.org slash Joe Walker, 80,000hours.org slash Joe Walker, take a look. Hello and welcome back to the show. My guest this episode is one of my favourite people, Shruti Rajagopalan. Shruti is an economist who leads the Indian Political Economy Programme at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She hosts the Ideas of India podcast and she directs the Emergent Ventures Moonshot Grants program for India at the Mercatus Center. I first met Shruti in Chennai, India in August of this year. The context for that was I received an Emergent Ventures grant from Tyler Cowan for this podcast in early 2023. And Emergent Ventures runs these two-day, what they call, unconferences where attendees, that is the grant winners, set the agenda themselves. At the moment, they hold one in the US and one in India each year, and I was invited to the Indian one, so that's where I met Shruti. For this podcast recording, I travelled to George Mason University in Virginia, and I commandeered the fabled GMU Podcast Studio, where Shruti and Tyler record their respective podcasts. And I had the privilege of spending more than three hours asking Shruti, about her ideas on India, and about how she identifies talent when she picks winners for Emergent Ventures India. Enjoy. Before we start the conversation, a quick notice. I'm doing a cross-promotion with the Clearer Thinking podcast. If you enjoy my podcast, I think you would also like the Clearer Thinking podcast with host Spencer Greenberg. It's a podcast about ideas that matter. I've listened to many of Spencer's episodes over the years. He has captivating intellectual conversations with fascinating guests. Recent guests on the Clearer Thinking podcast include Ilya Sutskova, the co-creator of ChatGPT, famed philosopher Peter Singer, and Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn. Give it a listen. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Clearer Thinking. Okay, let's do it. So over the past 12 months, I've developed an utter fascination for India. So who better to learn from than someone who, among many other things, hosts a podcast called Ideas of India? Shruti Rajagopalan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So Shruti, for the next two hours, I'm going to be your student. Okay. And this is going to be a very selfish conversation. I'm going to ask you all of the questions that I've been pondering recently. And I'm conscious that I'm probably treating you Maybe not so much as like the oracle of Delphi, but the oracle of Delhi. (laughs) You like that? I'm
1: I'm okay with that.
0: (laughs) You grew up in Delhi, right? I grew up in Delhi. So please feel free to pass on any of my questions because I realize if someone put me in this position with respect to Australia, I probably wouldn't be able to answer all of their questions. So nevertheless, uh, thank you in advance for helping me to better understand India. First question... Is it coherent to even have understanding India as a goal, given how heterogeneous India is? Like to what to what extent does it make sense to seek to understand India?
1: To a very high degree. Okay. Uh, we've come a long way, not just in terms of having a consistent geographical boundary in terms of how India looks today, and that hasn't changed very much uh, other than minor areas, but for a very long time, Everything sort of roughly south of the Himalayas and north of the Indian Ocean uh, from time to time has been has come under sort of one group of people. Right. So you can go back a few millennia and you can think of something like the Mauryan Empire that had most of India under its rule. Something more recent is like the Mughal Empire. Uh, The modern day Indian geographical boundaries probably closest to what came you know, with the East India Company and the British Crown. That that seems to be what the modern day, you know, the the rhombus shape is taken from. Uh, but there is a lot of commonality between these different plural groups. So of course they're different religions, they speak different languages and so on. But because of a particular kind of syncretic living over, say two or three millennia, hmm. they've somehow managed to figure it out and they worked out how to chug along, Yeah. right? And depending on when you look, sometimes it's going splendidly well. Uh, sometimes everyone is warring with one another and there's a lot of strife and there's a lot of drought and famine and so on. But largely, I think there is something that holds them together. Now, having said that, of course, you know, I grew up in New Delhi. I grew up actually in neighborhoods uh, where there were a lot of post-partition uh, refugees, as they call them, refugee colonies, right? But they were basically post-partition Indians who came from the Pakistan side of Punjab and and settled in colonies in New Delhi. And there's a lot more commonality between those neighbors of mine and say, uh, you know, modern day Afghan tribes, right? Uh, on the other hand, I'm... Tamilians uh you know my my ancestors are from what is modern day Tamil Nadu and you would find a lot more overlap between like you know certain cultures in Cambodia or Indonesia of course with Sri Lanka because they had a big Tamil population and so on so there are parts of India where they have a lot more overlap with something that seems quite foreign and the millions have a lot less in common with Punjabi's relative to, say, you know, Afghan border with Punjabis. But largely, this entire group has managed to find something in common.
0: Hmm. They're united in their syncretism. Yeah. I like that.
1: Or at least that's the effort.
0: Right. Yeah, most of them at least. So a step function change occurred in the amount of attention that I pay to India about a year ago as a result of reading a Substack article of yours called Why Everyone Should Pay More (laughs) Attention to India, which is fantastic and I recommend to everyone. So at the outset, can you sell me on the bull case for India? Can you just outline the basic bull case?
1: It's a very large number of people. Uh, It's a very young group of people, which means over the next 50 to 70 years, this is the group that will exert a lot of influence Of course, the elite among them already exert a lot of influence because they end up being the CEOs of, you know, the major tech companies in the United States, you know, prime ministers of, you know, uh, Indian or South Asian origin in various parts of Europe and the UK and so on. But even those who are not the elite uh, will drive things forward. So if you, you know, think about something like machine learning, right, think about something simple like how do we, get a better tool to diagnose cataracts, okay? India literally will have the largest number of eyeballs to train that algorithm, right? Mm. Uh, So, this includes people who are probably not the elite, right? It's already driving all the YouTube algorithms because a similar reason, largest number of eyeballs, Mm. relatively low opportunity cost culture among the non-elite, right? so there are obvious reasons, depending on what you're after, that India could be the largest provider of certain kinds of labor. It could be the largest provider of certain kind of attention, right? If you're if you're looking at all these big platforms, uh, it could be the defining force in how democratic institutions look in the global south. I think to a very large extent it already is. Um, and suddenly, thanks to the internet revolution and everything that's going on, in the developed parts of the world, India is having its moment uh, with startup entrepreneurs. And I think you've seen a little bit of that on your last trip to India. I see a lot of that closely when I work with emerging ventures grantees. And there is a certain kind of untapped entrepreneurial talent in India that I think will really drive very interesting entrepreneurial solutions uh, for the next, say, 40 to 50 years. Mm. And the other reason is, America doesn't solve problems for developing countries necessarily. I mean, the technology Americans produce, of course, it diffuses to other countries. Right. But it doesn't specifically solve problems of, you know, how do we eliminate problems of, say, open defecation or how do we resolve air pollution and so on. Indians are grappling with those problems and they are trying to solve those problems at scale. And if Indians can solve those problems for India, then there's a very good solution next for Northern Africa, right? right? And the moment there's enough income, you know, GDP per capita and entrepreneurial talent in Sub-Saharan Africa, that will filter to Sub-Saharan Africa. So I I think for many reasons, this will be the driver of the world and just sheer numbers, I think, you know.
0: On the point about sheer numbers, a few statistics from your article really impressed me so as people probably already know india has a similar population to china about 1.43 yeah 1.44 billion people but i believe china's population has now already peaked whereas india's won't peak until 2065 Yes. and the other factoid in your article that really caught my eye was that globally one in five people below the age of 25 is from india yes So what advice would you give me, a young Australian, for learning about India?
1: I think you're already doing all of it. You know, I think it's useful to actually get to know Indians, especially people who are most interesting to you. So that's the nice thing about a country with scale, right? Whatever interests you, you will find a group of Indians who share that interest and will also share insights on other margins and probably invite you home for dinner and feed you a great meal and, you know, so on. Uh, I think it's extremely valuable to visit India and travel in India. First, there are a number of really beautiful places to visit. Uh, The heritage is exquisite. It's hard to get to oftentimes, but it's really exquisite. Uh, Australia is a relatively new country. I mean, I've seen plaques when I went to, you know, Sydney and Brisbane and so on, which will, you know, outside a pub that will say, oh, it stood here for 180 years oh, yeah, or something right. like that, right? I mean, now you're talking 2000 years, <laughs> right? The, the places we visited in Chennai on the field visit, uh, you know, with Emergent Ventures, they were all a thousand years old, yeah. right? These carvings, just very accessible. Anyone can just go there and check this out. So I think there's a lot to see visually. Uh, there's a lot to experience culturally. And I think the other reason to pay attention, and this is going to come to Africa too, India has been an experiment at scale in pluralism, right? And I think all the developed economies which are now trying to encourage immigration, which are trying to encourage a certain kind of pluralism, and still hope to keep their institutional and democratic fabric intact, I think there's a lot to learn from India, both in terms of the kinds of mistakes Indians have made in the past and also how they navigate some of these issues, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I think that's that would be the other reason, uh, you know, the, the governance system, the rules. Uh, also, India is entertaining. Indian Twitter is bananas.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a scary place at times. <laughs> also very meme-worthy. <laughs> Two of my favorite experiences in the last however many years have been in India, like top five experiences. So I've done two trips there in the last 12 months, one being the Emergent Ventures on conference in Chennai in August of this year. But the first time I went to India was just by myself at the end of last year. One of my goals for 2022 was I need to go to India and just set foot on the ground. And I went to Delhi and Bangalore. And before I arrived, I tweeted out that I would be there. And if anyone wanted to meet up to DM me, Turns out I have at least three Indian podcast listeners and I met up with a couple of them. And it's just a sheer joy recalling those memories. Like one guy toured me around bookstores in Delhi, like Barrison's and some of the other bookstores, met his family, we had lunch. Another guy took me out to Gagawan, the kind of satellite city slash tech village outside of Delhi uh, and still keeps in touch. You know, I told him we were doing this podcast today, bounced some ideas with him. He probably sends me an article every two weeks, oh, like even a year later because he knows I'm interested in India. Um, so just really lovely experiences and, and lovely, lovely people. If I've already been to Delhi, Bangalore and Chennai, where should I go on my next trip?
1: Um, what are you optimizing for?
0: I guess just learning about India broadly, which I realize is kind of vague, but I'm at the point where I, I don't have more specific goals than that with respect to travel?
1: I think it's useful to go to places like Banaras or Varanasi. It's in Uttar Pradesh, which is one of the poorest states, Mm -hmm. but it's also, you know, the holiest city for Indians. Right. So there's a lot to see in terms of exotic culture Mm -hmm. or what seems exotic even to me, actually. Um, And there are beautiful temples. It's literally on the banks of the Ganges. Hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, you will also see a startling amount of poverty and just how far behind, you know, uh, some Indians are relative to the others that you have met probably in big cities or the mm. Indian diaspora that you met in the United States and Australia. So I think that might be an interesting experience sort of to see the other side, to see what, you know, what schools they go to, how they live. What their problems are, what their aspirations are. Hmm. Um, a trip to the mountains—they're my favorite place. Yeah, uh, I encourage everyone to go up north. To the Himalayas, go to the, yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah,
1: and I mean, pick pick your spot, but I really like Ladakh. Uh, it's the desert side of the mountain. It's sort of you know in. Uh, what used to be the state of Jammu and Kashmir now Ladakh is a separate territory mm-hmm. and there's a big Buddhist influence there, so there are lots of monasteries. It's you know most of the parts of Ladakh that I find interesting are at about eight to ten thousand feet above sea level. so it makes it interesting. it makes it hard to breathe. It's just like a completely different uh different experience. um I love the coastal towns. I love Kerala. I love anywhere in Kerala. Uh, I would go to Mumbai.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you haven't been, it's chaotic and it's vibrant. And uh, to me, because I've lived in New York City for a long time, I love New York. I love Hong Kong and Bombay has or Mumbai now has the same vibe right. uh, as the others. So it's just a lot of people and a lot of talent and a lot of entrepreneurship and a lot of people doing their own thing all jammed into a tiny space, Yeah, uh, which makes it fun. It's also home for me. My husband's from there. My in-laws still live there, so I'm there all the time. Right. Uh, my parents live in uh, now in one of the suburbs of Delhi. Uh, so, yeah, it just feels familiar. Really cool place.
0: Should I be using the Desi names for Indian cities? So, should I be saying Bengaluru instead of Bangalore?
1: Well, if you should, I should.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh,
1: I'm a little bit frozen in time, actually. Yeah, Mumbai now because, you know, it's been so long that I tried to do yep. to say the Desi yep. name. Uh, but... I, I think it's okay. I think the goal is always to be understood. I think people understand when you say Bangalore. Okay. And they'll understand when you say Bengaluru.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, yours is probably going to be like a double, uh, a higher level problem with Indian names and the accent. Right. Uh, it might be a little <laughs> bit easier to use the the colonial name.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't think it's a big deal.
0: Okay. <laughs> what are the most non-obvious cultural differences that Western people should be aware of when interacting with people in India.
1: I think one thing there's just an underappreciation for is how important caste is in everyday life. Right, and that's probably because most people Americans encounter are from the upper castes, right? Uh, and if you're from the upper castes, it's a non-issue what your caste is to some extent. Yeah, uh, but it's really part of everything. Uh, Right from your name, the way you pronounce it, your dialect, what you eat, uh, where you live, who you're allowed to marry, uh, even if it's someone you choose, right? So Mm. who are you allowed to choose? Mm. I know that sounds strange, uh, but that's the sort of Indian thing. uh, So I think there's just an underappreciation for that. Uh, There's just so much variation uh, once you dig into India, and once you start looking into, hey, why does that family cook their food differently from this family? Why do these people eat meat and you know the others don't, or why do they live in this neighborhood and they don't live in a slightly better part of town? Everything has to do with caste, yeah. Uh, the profession, of course, which is pretty well known.
0: I was intrigued to learn that even at the Indian Administrative Services, the IAS, which is India's public service, incredibly prestigious roles. Yes. You, you basically kind of have like tenure yeah. for, uh, for life. Um, on the first day, the, the number one question that the trainees are trying to answer is what is everyone's caste, yes. because they're trying to ascertain Yep. Potential marriage partners.
1: Well, and also social status and hierarchy, right? Ah, Uh, of course. Everyone wants to know the pecking order wherever you go. Right. You meet a group of economists, they'll try and, you know, suss out where you got your PhD. And if it's at an elite institution, which elite professor did you work with? And is that more elite or less elite than the ones they worked with? Yeah. Uh, There's a pecking order in every group dynamic. And the pecking order in India even if we say it is determined by something else, the underlying order is always caste. It is standing on that mm. foundation of caste. Uh, because everything from, uh, you know, the the income and wealth levels, uh, I'm not saying there is no social mobility in India. In fact, post-liberalization, it is the most disenfranchised in some sense who made the largest gains, right? Mm. Because of access to markets and just economic growth lifting You know, being the tide that lifts all boats. So, uh, next week on Wednesday, we have a a Dalit economic sociologist scholar called Chandrabhan Prasad who's going to come to Mercatus and talk about this. So, it's not that there's no social mobility, but everything is very much predetermined in one sense by your caste. All other movements uh, are on the margin. For
0: people wondering, Dalit is the modern politically correct term for an untouchable. Yes. There are about 270 million yes. Dalits in India today. Yes,
1: that's exactly right. Yeah.
0: Why haven't Westerners shown the same concern for the Indian caste system and the plight of Dalits as they have, for example, for apartheid in South Africa or, or Palestine?
1: I think there are two possible reasons i haven't studied this area so it's it's hard to say i think so much of the american gaze on others disenfranchisement is based on race and some kind of a binary which is fairly easy to identify visually hmm. right so race and gender are the two binaries of disenfranchisement that has driven the American concern for those who are disenfranchised. And I don't think they can identify caste quite as easily as Indians can. So Indians will know someone's caste just by the way they speak, the, the neighborhood they're from, their last name, the way they pronounce their first name and, you know, so on. Uh, that's fairly invisible to Americans. So Americans can't tell an English-speaking Dalit from an English-speaking upper caste member. Right. And to that extent, that disenfranchisement becomes a little bit invisible. And I think the narrative or the preconceived idea in America is that if you can't visually spot it and discriminate, then it, it must be something one can overcome. Yeah. Right? But I think now there's a greater understanding of this problem. And I think second, they've just not come across many Dalits, Mm. right? Uh, Most of the immigration to the United States, especially after the H-1B changes in the early 90s and sort of the tech boom, they were all upper caste. In fact, they were overwhelmingly initially Brahmins from the southern part of India. And these were the people who got you know they were very large disproportionately large numbers of engineers compared to their their proportion of population and uh you know found great opportunities they happened to be english speaking mm-hmm. and and the world kind of opened up uh so i think just less interaction the more they start interaction interacting with dalits i think that nuance can probably come in and it will start changing right i see that happening with um the understanding of Islam, I think that has improved dramatically say in the last 20 years post uh, nine and, eleven, 11 And I, I hope that will happen for other cultures too. Yeah.
0: To what extent is the question, what is this person's caste?" kind of lingering in the back of the mind of even an attendee at an Emergent Ventures India Unconference? And how does, that, how does that factor into your thinking as a conference organizer? Is it something that you care about? Is it something you want to mitigate? Is it something you're indifferent to?
1: So let me tell you on a very practical level, people care about other people's caste, even if it's not explicit, because in any situation where you have to share food, right? Different hmm. castes have quite different eating practices. And uh, this is obviously more of a concern for those who are in the upper caste and who are vegetarian. So oftentimes, you know, at least the ostensible explanation that I have been given by my friends and cousins in India is, it's not that we're interested in someone's caste. It's that we don't want a situation where we offend someone or we are offended because we... We are in a situation where we're eating something that makes us uncomfortable, and so on. So that's the the very pragmatic reason where it comes in, hmm. where it's sort of in everyone's minds, either explicitly or implicitly. And it is a question on you know, are we going? If we're going to be breaking bread together, are we are we really doing this, or are we not doing this? How are we doing this? Right. Um, but I think it's also a marker of social status. Typically, the upper caste have gained the most in the last 75 years. They were the group that were lettered, right? The Dalits weren't allowed to learn how to read and write. So when you come to a situation where a colonial administration says, okay, we're going to train a new generation of Indians uh, in the ways of administrating a colonial setup, the people who were obvious uh, contenders for that were those who had already had some Uh, education, right? So, usually they spoke multiple native tongues and then they also started learning English. There's actually a word for this in the 18th 18th and 19th century. It was called Dubashi, someone who speaks multiple languages, Mm. right? Um, And then that goes further down. So, my great-grandfathers spoke English and their native tongue, right? as did my grandfathers, as did my parents, and and so on. So that's the group that ends up gaining the most from liberalization, ends up gaining the most from foreign direct investment, ends up gaining the most from World Bank hiring in India Mm. and, you know, any any such thing. Uh, So I think that is something um, that became a marker for status. Mm. So we knew that the upper caste members are also the most educated. They happen to have the main opportunities both in India and abroad. Uh, And therefore, that's the group we must associate with. Right. And anyone who doesn't sound or look like that, they must not be very good or they must not be of that much use to my, my plans. Right. That's usually how. So here, caste is very much in the background. No one's actually discriminating on it. But You've met 20 something entrepreneurs when they're in a room. They care about what can I get out of this social connection? Mm. Uh, Are they going to be an input into my work? Are they going to help me raise funding? Are they actually going to help me build a better product? And everyone does it at some extent, except in India. All those questions, if you keep peeling the layers, the final back spine of that will be buried. The explanation will be buried in caste.
0: How many languages do you speak? Three. Tamil Nadu, Hindi, English. Tamil or uh, Hindi English. Sorry, Tamil, Sorry. Hindi, English. Yes. Tamil
1: Nadu is the state. Nadu is means state.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm still learning.
1: <laughs> You're doing very well. <laughs> Thanks.
0: Why is so much good Indian food situated in hotel restaurants? So in Australia and fr- from my experience, the US as well, high quality restaurants are generally not attached to hotels. Um, but My experience traveling India is that that is where I would get the consistently best quality food. If I'm correct, what's the explanation for that? Is it that like the high quality food costs a certain amount to produce and then that requires high discretionary incomes, which only tourists can provide consistently at the moment?
1: One, I don't think that's correct. Okay. Actually, uh, I don't like the Indian food in five-star restaurants. Oh. Uh I actually actively avoid them. Yeah. I think the food is too rich. Yeah. Uh, I think it's quite different from what we eat every day and what feels like comfort food to me. Mm-hmm. And I might also be an outlier because I really love street food. And they try to make a version of it in all these posh hotels, but yeah. it's not quite there. Okay. Yeah, okay. But it's still very high quality. So it's not that you're getting bad food. It's that I I don't go to five star hotel restaurants to eat when I'm in India, Mm -hmm. right? I go to strange joints that you would be like, you're really eating there, but the food's very good. And because I have local context, I know it's clean, right? Um, But I think it's also very good because Indians with very high levels of disposable income like eating Indian food. And this is unlike other places. Like I, you know, if you travel in other parts of Asia or say Africa, a lot of the people with very high levels of disposable income are actually the expats. And they may not be that interested in eating the local cuisine yeah. at a quality level or, you know, at a presentation level or at an in an ambiance that's really posh. Uh, but I think Indians are at that level of income. Hmm. Um and it's really hard to make Indian food very badly in India. I mean, they're People who can make it well are everywhere. Hmm. So if you're a five-star hotel owner who has like even their basics figured out right, you can probably get a pretty decent chef. So the food will never be bad. But do I think it's the best food? I'm not so sure. Hmm. I don't even mean best food per rupee spent. I just, I don't think it's the best food actually. Well, that, that, that doesn't
0: surprise me, the second claim. But how would I, so the advice I've received is to avoid street food in India. So what what principle should I follow to get good street food?
1: Um, well, one, it's not bad advice, okay? Because it's, you're probably going to get sick and you probably visit India, you know, for a few days, you don't want your entire trip to be torpedoed by Delhi Belly or something <laughs> awful. So it's largely good advice. I think as long as you avoid ice, raw fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And water,
2: okay. you're fine. Yeah.
1: Most people know that they should drink bottled water, but they always forget the ice. And mm. the ice comes from somewhere disgusting. Yeah. And raw vegetables, you're in trouble. Uh, but cooked food, especially if it's made freshly in front of you, I think most street food, you'll be fine. Okay. Yeah. Well, but if it know. has an uncooked portion or it's very watery and it's got all these chutneys and things which are raw and, and a fluid situation, I would avoid that. Yeah. So Unless rest- you're Tyler. Tyler has, uh, his stomach is lined with iron. He can eat anything. <laughs> he's eaten in places I wouldn't eat at, and right. he's totally fine.
0: Good microbiome. <laughs> <laughs> so I know this because you responded to a tweet of mine earlier this year in which I solicited Indian book recommendations. Oh. But two of your favorite Indian fiction books are Rohinton Mysteries, A Fine Balance, and Vikram Seth's A Suitable Boy. I read A Fine Balance many years ago uh, back in high school and I absolutely adored it.
1: Adore is not a word I use for that book. I just, it broke my heart just so many times, but I know what you mean. It's beautifully written, but it's it's heartbreaking.
0: Tragic, yeah, poignant. So what did you like about each of those books?
1: I think the the thing I like about both books are they're this intergenerational saga, Mm. which is how the Indian epics are told, right? So if you've read Indian epics, they're like, intergenerational, large families, lots of different characters coming and going. And uh, they, they are very good at describing a milieu. Right, uh, And I think both books do that very well.
0: They're both very long.
1: They're both very long. They are multi-generational. Yeah. Uh, and I think Vikram said, it's, uh, Suitable Boy has a lot more characters uh, than A Fine Balance. but So that's one thing I like about it. The second is, I think, Both are about a time period uh, from I wasn't born in that time, but I know a lot about it because my parents were around and my grandparents were around and we all lived in the same home. So I've heard a lot about it, but I never heard it in this sort of modern English literature sort of language. Uh, It was just the stuff that they told me. But to read it in this novel form, the way we read, you know, Russian literature or English literature, that I think. Because you know I mean, you know how these colonial education systems are, right? You grow up reading literature that is not mm. from your time and space. Mm. So to find something that is from that is familiar to you but is written in that language, I think is very, very interesting. Mm. So I love both books. I love these crazy sagas across generations. Yeah. I'm a sucker for it. My husband likes to kid that he hates reading any book where there's a family tree that you have to keep going back to and <laughs> I love books like that. So I love 100 Years of Solitude. I love Suitable right. Boy, which, you know, yeah. first two pages are a family tree and then there's an appendix. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, what excites you about that?
1: Um I think Just the story has to be told from multiple points of view. Yeah. I think that's the exciting thing. Mm -hmm. If a story which is of that breadth, right, had to be told from just one person's point of view, that would be really hard. Right. So I also like stories which are told from one person's point of view or only last uh, a day. Like, uh, you know, what's that book? Uh, A Day in the Life of Ivan. Denisovic oh
0: right I've never read it uh, but Alexander I know, I
1: know the Solzhenitsyn oh my god yeah. I must be I am mispronouncing so many <laughs> words right now that book for instance is not this kind of crazy layered story with lots of different points of view mm-hmm. but that's the powerful thing about that book it's just like one person telling you about the most mundane things and it is gut-wrenching because it's talking about something much larger uh but I, I love stories. If you're talking about a lot of breadth and complexity, anything that can be told from lots of different points of view, I love that stuff. Hmm. And Vikram said does that really well. Hmm. So there aren't I mean, there is only one protagonist driving the story. But all these other side characters that come and go, you learn about what are their incentives, what yeah. are they what are they trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish? Yeah. And and it's really fun.
0: On this point about like a sprawling Indian. Kind of dynastic saga. How can large Indian families help explain the relative success of the Indian diaspora in America?
1: So I think one is, you know, when, so there are two parts to the diaspora question, right? One is just they are elite, they're well educated they did really well. And I think that has less to do with Indian families. I think that has more to do with the fact that India's education system is just designed for selecting the cream. Mm -hmm. That's how it was designed. Macaulay wanted to select the cream of the English educated to run the civil services. Then Nehru came in, he wanted to, you know, select the cream to become engineers and doctors to fit into the part of the socialist planning machinery. And we've just kept that going. Uh, And now selecting that cream has benefited American companies and Silicon Valley and firms across the world because someone's already done the selection. Mm. So now we just need to make sure we incubate the talent. Mm. But I think the large Indian family bid explains why they get to the top. So, you know, there's some literature on this and they literally, I, I think the title of some of these papers is the bamboo ceiling. So they talk about how Asian Americans uh, relative to South Asian Americans or Indians who are the overwhelming part of that group. Uh, Asian Americans are very well represented in sort of the mid levels and upper levels of law firms or tech firms and so on, but not so well represented for the top when we consider the top job. And Indians tend to be almost overrepresented when it comes to the top job. Right. Right. Think and, of people
0: like Sundar Pichai, exactly. et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Indra Nui, yep. uh, Sundar Pichai. Uh, uh, the poor Uh, guy, Parag Agarwal, who got (laughs) booted out of Twitter very unceremoniously. Um, The
0: CEO of Microsoft.
1: Oh, yes. uh, Satya Nadella. Right. So these are typically uh, the people. Uh, I believe Starbucks has a new Indian CEO. I can't recall his name, but we're hoping he stops stops them from calling it uh, chai tea latte (laughs) because tea is chai. Uh, But, you know, jokes aside, so there's, Almost like an overrepresentation at the at the for the top job, and I think being part of a large Indian family and also just living in a very plural environment uh, teaches us from a very young age how do you navigate a complex system. Mm. And I think large companies are complex. Mm. There is some built-in hierarchy. There is a cultural code you need to crack. You need to learn how you talk to your peers. You need to learn how to talk to the janitor. You need to learn how to talk to the board. You need to learn to talk to the people like your bosses and those above you and to clients and customers. And I think that Indians learn from a very young age, right? The way I speak with my grandparents is not the same way that I speak with my parents, is not the same way I speak with neighbors and now, if you start getting into people, uh, different people, not in a family hierarchy, but in a social or economic hierarchy, the way you speak with people who come and you know they are your housekeepers or your gardeners or your chauffeurs is not the same way you would speak with your boss. And in India, that's very clear and people learn it at a very young age. And it's a cultural code you learn how to crack without even knowing that you're cracking it. Yeah, And I think that that's very helpful in very large companies.
0: That's so interesting. What's a good development economics book? It doesn't have to be about India per se. could be any development economics book, but one that would help me understand India.
1: Well, I think the best development economics book even today is An Inquiry into the Wealth of Nations right. that Adam Smith wrote. Great. Does that help us understand India? I think it does. I think it helps us understand everything. Yeah. Um, A development economics book that'll help us understand India better. I need to think a little bit more about that. I'm trying to think about stuff that was written specifically for India and I think that may be a bad idea. Why so? Because most development economics that's been written for India in the last few decades is all about redistributing and randomized controlled trials or something else that has nothing to do with development, Hmm. uh, that has to do with measurement and redistribution and things like that. Hmm. Uh, When I think of development, I think of how can South Korea go from being sort of the third poorest economy in the 50s to, I don't know, GDP per capita that's you know, sixty percent of United States in twenty twenty three. That's an extraordinary miracle. So what is the book that explains that? I think is the book that explains everything. Yeah. Um and I think a lot of books on trade explain that very well. Um and I think all the classic books, you know, like The Wealth of Nations would explain that very well.
0: To what extent would understanding India's constitution be a good way for me to understand India generally?
1: If you understand India's Constitution, tell me <laughs> and explain it to me, please, because that has been a lifelong endeavor. <laughs> uh, um, I think it's very helpful if you're trying to understand certain kinds of institutional quirks and craziness, okay. So if you understand why India's election system is so messy, or if you understand if you want to understand, why every electoral constituency in India is of a different size, depending on which state it's in, right? Or if you're trying to understand why the Supreme Court functions the way it functions, the answer is always buried somewhere in the constitution. You just have to find it. Mm -hmm. Um, So if that's the endeavor, then understanding the constitution is extremely helpful. But it is a very complex document. Uh, I say most people say this with pride. I don't. It is the longest constitution in the world. It's extremely complex. It's got like 395 or 400 articles. It has 12 appendices or schedules attached at the back. It has more exceptions than it has rules, uh, which I think makes for a terrible constitutional document. So it's not necessarily a good constitution, but it's very complex. So trying to understand it is a huge investment. Right. So I would say make that investment if you're studying specific institutional quirks. But if there's one area that you want to deep dive into, uh, it's always useful to check out, hey, what are the constitutional provisions that affect that? Because there's definitely some crazy buried in there right? that's causing the problem.
0: And maybe start with a secondary source rather than the constitution or itself. Always start
1: with the secondary source. The constitution is incomprehensible to <laughs> someone who hasn't taken multiple classes in constitution law, yeah. which I did when I was in law school. And, Yeah, maybe I regret it now, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So I don't know if you know this, Shruti, but Australia's constitution is notoriously hard to change. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we've had 45 national referenda, that is votes to change the constitution in the 122 years since our federation in 1901. And only eight of those have succeeded. So that's a success rate of like less than 18%. We just had one that failed a few weeks ago actually. Oh, what was it about? It was about adding a voice to parliament to the constitution, a voice that would represent indigenous Australians and would be able to make uh-huh. representations to the parliament on behalf of indigenous Australians relating to issues that pertain to them. Uh,
1: but a voice in the sense is that like electoral seats in the parliament or no? no? Oh, no, just a voice. Just okay. A, yeah,
0: just a an it un- failed. Un- unelected body it failed. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Part of our kind of long story of Indigenous recognition and closing the the gap between those outcomes. So the key reason why is there's a very high hurdle to pass. That is a double majority. So you need a national majority plus a majority of voters in a majority of states. And that's obviously a vestige of our federation where the smaller states wanted to protect their position relative to the larger states. In contrast, as you know, the Constitution of India... (laughs) (laughs) has undergone 105 amendments in the 73 years since its adoption. I don't know what kind of success rate that translates to because I don't know the number of proposed amendments. Very high. I think maybe
1: six have failed. That's it.
0: Wow. That's it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So India's constitution is one of the most frequently amended constitutions in the world. To what extent is that the result of the fact that it as you said, contains so much detail. It's the longest constitution in the world. Um, it contains a lot of detail that in Australia would just be put in legislation. Or on the other hand, to what extent is it the result of a relatively easy amendment process? Like how much weight should we put on each of those factors? I'm not even sure if they're conceptual alternatives, but, no,
1: but how should I, I think about this? Um So I'll tell you how I think about it. And maybe you can tell me if that makes sense. Yeah. So one of the reasons it's had so many amendments is definitely that it's easy to amend. Right. So the Indian constitution, one, because it's so long, there there are three sub clauses in the amendment provision. There are parts of the constitution that can be amended by simple majority, what it takes to pass regular legislation. And those are mostly administrative parts, right, Uh, to add or change like a border boundary or like, you know, to add or change some minute detail on appointing someone. All that stuff is simple majority. There's a second, the majority of the Constitution, though the the amendment procedure says that you need, it's a dual requirement, you need a majority of the total membership of the House with at least two thirds present and voting. Right. So let's say if you have a council of 100 people, If all 100 show up, you need 67 votes, right? Uh, If only 50 show up, you need 50. If only 51 show up, you need all 51 votes, right? So that's the dual nature of the requirement. So if you have a government which has reasonable numbers in parliament in terms of constituency seats, the government can quite easily carry the day. Uh, by making side deals with others to either ask them not to show up that day, which will drop the number of people present and therefore the majority requirement comes down. And in the past, like, you know, in the case of Nehru, Indira Gandhi, they actually had more than 67% of the numbers of the House. So, you know, those amendments passed quite easily. So it's a relatively easy amendment procedure for that reason. There are very few clauses, this is the third part, there are very few clauses in the constitution that require ratification by the states. And this is a simple majority in the state legislature of half the number of states. Most states in India are unicameral, right? And a simple majority in a small unicameral state, we're talking about like 20 votes or something, like it's pretty easy to manipulate, bully by (laughs) those amendments, not hard. And the fact that India was centrally planned and also fiscally very centripetal, that is, the union government controlled the purse strings, meant that the state legislatures and the state governments were always at the mercy of the union cabinet. Mm-hmm. And kind of, you know, you you you're never short of state governments that'll do your bidding because you control the purse strings or you control other things that are coming to them. So that's the 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 overarching picture of how easy it is to amend the constitution. Now coming to And and the second reason I think it was a simple amendment procedure is the second, the moment the Supreme Court of India said that now they will also decide if an amendment is valid or not, which is kind of like a judicial ratification, right? We can open it up after it's passed and ratify whether it's right or wrong. The moment the Supreme Court said that it has the power to do that, uh, the number of amendments reduced per year, right? Or per decade. So, an easy amendment procedure for sure. Now, is it because of its length? I'm not so sure that that's the case. Because it's not that different parts of the Constitution were amended because they were affecting different parts and there was too much specificity. Hmm. What we observe is that there's a small number of clauses that's gone on, gone through a lot of amendment.
0: Oh, interesting. And
1: usually it's the Bill of Rights, okay. right? This is uh, uh, yep. the chapter called Fundamental Rights in the Constitution. Yeah. So some of my dissertation work was on this, and I argued that at least the first four decades, which is the time period I was looking at, the reason for frequent amendments was uh, socialist planning. Socialist planning requires you to break the rules of generality. It requires you to break the rules of equality. It requires you to basically break a lot of rules that are enshrined in fundamental rights to constrain the state. But you can't constrain a state that needs to do socialist planning. That's the entire point of that state, right? They need to be able to take from Peter and give to Paul. And they need to be able to treat Peter and Paul differently. Not just reasonable classification differently, but like actually substantively differently. And those were the sorts of interventions that led to a lot of amendment of the Constitution. Uh, Lots of affirmative action amendments because newer and newer groups want to be included in the protections that were initially only afforded to the Dalits and the what were known as the Scheduled tribes, but were the indigenous tribes. Um, So those were the sorts of things that constantly underwent change. Um, And for that reason, I think it's because the state wanted to be unconstrained and not bound by rules. Uh, Now, whether it was for a good reason or a bad reason is up for uh, question. I think it was terrible that they amended the constitution so frequently. Lots of people actually lauded the Nehru and Indira Gandhi vision of constantly amending the constitution to make sure that the government's socialist agenda was furthered. So, you know, that depends. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's the core reason.
0: Hmm. Well, that is an ex- excellent explanation. Thank you. So, yeah, just to dwell on this a little further, people from federations like... Canada and Australia, who use referenda processes to alter their constitution, will note that India, while being a federation, has this different process. Um, And so the framers of India's constitution presumably made that decision very deliberately. Yes. Yes. And what's your hunch as to why they made it so easy to amend?
1: So I'll tell you what my hunch was and what I've uncovered. Okay. okay? So... Initially, this was, I, I started thinking about this question about 10, 10, 12 years ago. And like I said, I was working, uh, my dissertation work was on amendments to the Constitution. Mm. And Dick Wagner, who's one of the you know now retired professor emeritus at George Mason, he worked very closely with Jim Buchanan, mm-hmm. was one of my you know academic heroes, uh, was on my dissertation committee. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh, cool. Just randomly asked me one day, uh, I think it was after my proposal or maybe during my proposal defense, he said... But why did they choose such an easy amendment procedure? You have no explanation for that. And I was like, that's a good question, Dick. Hmm. And I'm still trying to answer it. So Dick always asks questions that you take 15 years to figure out. Right. And I started digging into that question. And my initial explanation was, uh, what is the predominant view of the constitutional framers? That they were all part of this Indian nationalist movement. They were sort of, you know, hallowed. They'd all gone to prison for years and years because of the colonial government throwing them in and out of prison because of sedition laws and so on. And they finally came upon and created this hallowed, you know, Constituent Assembly. And they were also socialists. They knew that you can't have a constitution that constrains the government too much. But they never thought too much about entrenching constitutional rules or having a difficult amendment clause because they thought none of them would commit a fraud upon the constitution. In fact, these phrases are in the constant assembly debates. We don't expect any government of India that's elected by the people to commit a fraud upon the constitution. The second ostensible reason that came up in the debates was the constant assembly of India was elected on a very limited franchise. I think only 28% of Indians were allowed to vote in those elections because you needed to own property and pay taxes. And, you know, there were all these rules. And they thought that that's unfair uh, to to bind the hands of future governments that are elected by universal franchise. And India is exceptional in that sense. At the birth of the republic, India had universal franchise, universal adult franchise. Um, so those were the reasons, and I completely believed them. I was like, mm. yeah, they said it. That makes sense. And but I'm trained as a public choice economist, right? And I'm trained in the Austrian tradition. I've studied, you know, socialist planning and things like that. So that sort of thing kept going on at the back of my mind. So my first question was, why are we treating them like these hallowed angels? And why aren't we treating them in the standard public choice way, which is they are self-interested political actors, right? So I started modeling the question that way. And then the second reason I realized was, unlike, say, self-interested actors who wrote the American constitution that, you know, where they were all property-owning men, uh, in fact, sometimes the property even included slaves, right? They included human property, not just, uh, you know, land and chattel. Uh, they wrote a constitution that protects their interests. Now, this is a group of avowed socialists, right? But they're also political actors. And I said, that's got to have something to do with how they choose the rules. And uh, I'm increasingly of the view that the Indian constitution, constitutional assembly chose differently because it was a group of socialists who obviously knew that you couldn't bind, you know, the hands of their own government or future governments from redistributing and so on. So the rules had to be simpler. But the other reason is they also had an expectation that they will be the rulers. Right. And this is what took me a long time to track down. So I recently, in the last, you know, few months, I made a list of all the Constituent Assembly members. I cross-checked them with election records and saw how many of them stood for elections in parliamentary elections in the first general election, which happened about 18 months after the constitution was written and adopted. And then uh, the second list I check is how many of them stood at state level legislature elections. And then I look at political appointments, right? Because one of them became the president of India, which is not elected directly by the people. So I said, let's make a list of these. And 211 out of 305 members held political, either political office, elected political office, or so either they were in the Lok Sabha, which is the the lower house, or they were in the upper house, or they were in the state legislatures. And about 10 of them were appointed as, you know, very important political appointments. So like a governor of a state Mm. or the president of India and so on. And that's two thirds of them. Which means they were also political creatures who were expecting to be in power. Because the standard constitutional economics models tell you, you constrain the hands of the government because you want to prevent bad things from happening to you. Mm. But if you expect to be in power, (laughs) Mm. right away, uh, then do you still constrain the government, right? Uh, so I think that's where the reason is hidden, huh. that they were both political actors who were expecting to be in positions of power very, very soon, and they were uh, socialists, which yeah. means that only the Bill of Rights doesn't get that extra protection, which it does in every major constitution. Every major constitution will tell you we entrench the Bill of Rights, yeah. right? But in India, other weird things are entrenched, federalism, judiciary, you know, how we change the tax system and things like that are entrenched, but not the Bill of Rights. yeah. um, so I, I find that quite uh, quite interesting and different from my own priors and definitely different from how anyone else describes uh, this literature
0: that is fascinating <laughs> wow. and And just because this might seem counterintuitive to some people. But the reason why socialism leads to not entrenching the Bill of Rights in the Constitution is that, You need to ride roughshod over some of those rights in pursuit of socialist redistribution and other policies.
1: Absolutely. So I'll give you a very simple example. One of the reasons that there were certain changes made in the very first amendment of the constitution is they were trying to do large scale land reform in India. Right. There's an actual case. uh, It's Kameshwar Singh, Sir Kameshwar Singh versus State of Bihar. Sir Kameshwar Singh is one of those old feudal aristocratic lords who made a deal with the East India Company through the permanent settlement. I'm talking, you know, late 18th century, early 19th century, Mm -hmm. managed to get, I don't know, 5,000 square miles of land under his control. So what started out as a tax collecting family actually became de facto owners of that land. He was part of the Constituent Assembly of India. And the question was, we need to do large scale land reform. And we need to take land from these rich Zamindars and give it to poor Zamindars. But herein lies the problem. Not all Zamindars are Kameshwar Singh. He owns an extra, he owns the amount of land he controls is like the size of the kingdom of Brunei. Whereas most Zamindars, you know, control maybe a couple of hundred acres of land. Which means the way we expropriate from Sir Kameshwar Singh to redistribute to regular folks, we can't punish the average or oh, garden variety aristocracy quite the same way. So the state of Bihar wrote legislation which was specifically targeted towards one dude, which is kameshwar Singh. And they wrote that, you know, land reform is allowed according to our constitution. The constant assembly members had already made provisions to make sure that land reform is acceptable. Eminent domain laws don't get in the way of that and so on. But there it said that the compensation principle is that for rich landlords, they would only receive one-twentieth of the compensation as poorer landlords, right? Which means Kameshwar Singh is going to get one tw- one-twentieth of the compensation per acre of land mm. versus the neighbouring, you know, regular Zamindar. And he took it all the way to the Supreme Court. And of course, the court said, that's crazy, that violates Article 14, which is equal protection under the law. But that was exactly the point. They intended to violate that to do what they needed to do. Right. So that's the sort of thing. So when we say they ran roughshod over the Bill of Rights, I don't think they intended to do that. But they were also politicians. They were standing for elections. This is not elections by a limited franchise of landowning class the way it has been everywhere in Western Europe and United States, Canada, Australia, like everywhere else in the world. Right. The developed part of the world Never started with the universal adult franchise. Hmm. So 95% of Indians were landless farmers. Sorry, 99% of, of Indians involved in agriculture, which was already about 90% of the population, hmm. were landless farmers. So those are the people you're going to be asking for votes, and now yeah. you can't disappoint them, right? Yeah. So you've got to do the land reform. But the Constitution stands in the way of doing the land reform. So how do we do this? So there was one group of people who said, throw this Constitution out, it's rubbish. Right. This, these are people who want communist revolution. And these are like the really avowed Marxists and so on. One group of people who were like the social conservatives said, look, we need some other organizing principle because this clearly violates, you know, equal protection under the law. And then there was a third group of people, people like Nehru, people like Ambedkar said, we need to find a compromise solution. Let's make an amendment to the Constitution and adjust a little bit. And that way we can make sure Kameshwar Singh doesn't get what he wants. Everyone gets what they want. The landless peasants suddenly get land, and you know everything. So it's it's politics by compromise, except it's happening on the constitutional stage, hmm. and that's why you have so many amendments. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun to read Indian constitutional history. It's it's what I do for fun <laughs> and <Yeah>. work.
0: <laughs> it sounds like a a rollicking history. So the the Indian Supreme Court has struck down some amendments as unconstitutional. Yes. And it developed a basic structure doctrine yeah. in this case called Kesavananda Bharati in the state of Kerala. Yeah. And that doctrine says that amend- amendments cannot be made to the basic structure of the constitution, meaning that parliament can't change certain features of the constitution as identified by the Supreme Court. Yes. So there's this fight in India over constitutional change with the parliament on one side and the courts on the other.
1: The order of events is right after the Constitution is adopted, the very first amendment happens for situations like Kameshwar Singh. Uh, By the way, the compromise solution on that is really interesting. Mm. They attached a new appendix right at the back of the Constitution called the Ninth Schedule because it was after the first eight schedules. And the Ninth Schedule, it's Article 31b, it basically says anything added to the Ninth Schedule cannot be invalidated by judicial review. Even if it's in violation with the fundamental rights, so basically it's like a backdoor, right? <laughs> how do you add something to the Ninth Schedule? Constitutional amendment, right? <laughs> it started with a list of, I think, thirteen statutes. Yeah. It became two hundred and eighty-five. Yeah. And this is the stuff I tracked in my doctoral work. I have a paper out on this in the Journal of Legal Studies. So it's just batshit crazy. I uh, mean, I don't even know how to describe this <laughs> in a <the> sane, coherent <laughs> constitutional language. So it started there. And that got challenged. And then the courts and parliament kept going back and forth on who is the custodian of the constitution? How much are you allowed to amend? Because it became very clear that the that in pursuit of the socialist agenda, they were really chipping away at some of the most fundamental protections that the Indian constitution afforded to its citizens. So that's how it started. Then it got a little too much. And then Nehru died, right? And and that generation of the old nationalist statesmen who had all been in prison and fought for the freedom of the country and framed this hallowed constitution, that generation was slowly fading mm. and no longer in parliament. And then the next generation that came along were clearly quite corrupt. Mm. And so the Supreme Court said, this is nonsense. We're not having any of it. So they passed uh, an opinion in Golaknath. This was in 1967. And. Um, where they said that the parliament can't have an absolute authority to amend any portion of the constitution, right? Right. That was the part that you read. Right. And then Indira Gandhi came back and she changed the wording of article 368, which is what you read out. And then that got re-challenged in 1973, which was Keshwanand. Yeah. And I think Keshwanand became precedent, like really strong precedent after the emergency, I think 1980, there were a couple of cases, Minerva Mills case, Vaman Rao. You know, these were all cases on property and nationalization of sick textile mills and things like that. Those cases established Keshwanan as president, saying that you can amend the Constitution, but there's a basic structure that can't be amended. Now, here is the hilarious thing about Keshvanan. Right, And you've met my colleague, uh, Shreyas Narla. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to see him right after this. Uh, He's working on a paper on this because this year is the 50th anniversary of Keshwanand Bharti. Hmm. (laughs) So what we're finding is (laughs) the original Keshwanand Bharti case said that there is an unamendable portion of the constitution, but we won't tell you what it is. (laughs) (laughs) It is stuff like some of the Bill of Rights, not all of them, some of them. It is stuff like you know, federalism, independence of the judiciary, separation of powers, the preamble, some core areas of the constitution, but we're not going to tell you exactly what that exhaustive list is. When we see it, we'll tell you. And that's why I call case and Bharti the judicial ratification clause that's attached to the amending procedure. So you amend all you want, then it's going to come to us and then we will tell you if that amendment passes or doesn't pass. Right. So that's effectively a judicial veto. Um so that's how that case panned out. Now we are looking at all the amendments that have happened since Keshwana. So what we are tracking is how many amendments happen. Were they challenged in the Supreme Court? Did the Supreme Court strike it down? And did they strike it down because of the basic structure, right? They could have struck it down because of some procedural incongruity or something else. The only times that something has not passed the Keshwana test, that is the only amendments that was struck down by the Supreme Court were the ones that limited the domain of the judiciary. Hmm. Everything else went. So, according to me, the only way I understand Keshwan and Bharati is judges are self-interested, hmm. and the only thing Parliament is not allowed to amend is restricting the domain, authority, power, or status of judges. Right. Everything else they will find some way to accommodate how it gets incorporated yeah yeah there'll be some compromise solution
0: well the next question i was going to ask you was how can a public choice theory lens help us interpret this fight between parliament and the courts and i guess that partly answers my question
1: So one is, I mean, judges like all other political actors, elected or not, are self-interested creatures. That Mm -hmm. is the core lens, I think, that I bring to the table. But now we can start looking specifically at judges' incentives, right? And a very key problem in the Indian constitution is uh, judges are, especially Supreme Court justices, are allowed to take on posts after retirement, and the Indian Supreme Court is not like the American Supreme Court, you know, for most of your listeners. It's not just nine judges, justices who are, who get a lifetime appointment. It is, uh, I think right now, the current bench strength, bench strength is 31, if I'm not wrong, 31 or 33. And they sit in uh, groups of two, three, five, you know, in, in different combinations. And uh, they usually get elevated around the age of 60 or 62. Right. So it takes a while to build the capital to get to the Supreme Court. Most justices come to the Supreme Court after they've retired or they've completed a high court term. And the retirement age in high court is 62. I think the average tenure of a Supreme Court justice is 22 months or something like that. So it's kind of a revolving door of people. And the retirement age in the Supreme Court is 65. And you still have plenty of good years left after 65. So what ended up happening is there are a whole number of tribunals that started getting introduced. And the way those statutes were written were a retired Supreme Court justice is the one who can occupy this post. So you have something like a National Human Rights Commission, you have XYZ tribunal. So retired high court and Supreme Court justices get those jobs. So now we've created a situation where there is a government job waiting, potentially, at the end of Supreme Court term. And the problem with independence, we always focus on how they're appointed. We never ask what happens after they leave. (laughs) Uh, There are a couple of excellent, uh, you know, papers on what happens after they leave. And uh, I think Shubhankar Dam, Ane and Giovanni, uh, I think they wrote a paper on this where they look at the last six months of opinions given by Supreme Court justices and whether they swing in favor of government and if they therefore get a government position after that and they do so that's the kind of thing public choice can uh, you know sort of really illuminate which is let's start looking at Supreme Court justices like regular people with all the sort of interests and problems and biases of regular people. Let's stop thinking of them as these omniscient, benevolent creatures uh, that we assume them to be. And then I think the nonsense that happens in the Indian Supreme Court suddenly starts coming into sharp focus and it becomes clearer what's going on.
0: So if Australia's constitution is frozen in time and India's constitution, or at least specific parts of it, are altered too readily... Which problem would you rather have? Like if I offered you the choice to swap your problem for ours, would you take it?
1: Unclear. Because I don't think the Australian constitution is frozen in time except in text. Mm-hmm. I think constitutions like Australia, constitutions like the United States constitution, textual changes are very, very different. But they're being rewritten every day by the judiciary, right? Right. So much has been changed by judicial interpretation. Mm -hmm. So basically what happens is if you make it very difficult to amend the Constitution through a particular procedure in a particular fora, then people will go to a different fora. Right. Right. And now you see in the United States, look at questions like, you know, Second Amendment rights, which are now entirely being debated in courts because it's a non-starter to actually go back and change the text of the Constitution. So when they happen in courts, suddenly you start worrying about who's on the bench and then you start worrying about which political party is supporting whom. In no other country do you see a major question for presidential candidates about their choice of justices that they would like to elevate to the bench, right? Uh, the kind of power that that's given to a Supreme Court justice in in the United States is extraordinary. And it's not because that's inbuilt into the American system. And it's not because they have lifetime appointments. It's because the formal constitution is very difficult to change. So you Mm -hmm. have to do it by interpretation. So it's going to happen one way or another. So this is a very vague and Hayekian answer, but it will come down to culture. And it will come down to political norms and political culture. And I think no matter how good the procedural rules in India, unless we fix that problem, I don't see the story ending particularly well.
0: Are you cool if we go till five or five thirty. I'm all okay. yours. Thank you so much. I
1: cleared my evening for you.
0: Oh, you're amazing. Thank you. Okay. Let's talk about talent selection. So
1: talent selection. Yes.
0: Okay. So okay. we first met because you run Emergent Ventures India an offshoot of the EV program run by Tyler. And EV India provides grants and microgrants to jumpstart high reward ideas that advance prosperity, opportunity, liberty, and the well-being of Indians. Yes. So I won an EV grant in January of this year.
1: And I, we're using it right now. We're using
0: it right now. And I don't know, but I think I'm the only Australian. Oh. Uh, that could be entirely wrong. I'm not aware uh, of any other Australians. I
1: wouldn't be surprised if you are the only Australian. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But at least I was included in the EV India unconference rather than the American one. I guess I'm just like geographically closer and that India conference kind of became like a catch all for some other like regions as well.
1: And your interest in India.
0: And my interest in India. Which I was aware of
1: when I invited
0: you. Oh, I didn't know that. Great. Well, thank you. So EV India kicked off with the first cohort of winners in April twenty twenty. And you've since had five cohorts for a total of about 130 winners. Yeah. First up, I just want to say I was, without exception, utterly impressed by every grantee I met at the conference in Chennai. These kids were just so amazing and so so sociable as well. Like they really cool. They're my
1: favorite people.
0: Amazing people.
1: I have been accused of being misanthropic, but that is a group I'm really thrilled to hang out with.
0: Me too. Me too. So that that is why that that conference was in my, or well, unconference I should say, yes. was in my my you know top very top experiences of the last several years. Um, in what ways is identifying Indian talent the same as identifying Western talent? For example, American talent.
1: I wouldn't know to be honest.
0: Okay.
1: I I kind of got into the talent identification business by accident. And uh, I think Tyler just kind of nudged me into it, and it worked out, so we continued doing it. Um, So initially, the way it happened was I had nothing to do with EV, actually. I came to Mercatus as a senior research fellow. I was supposed to build out a program studying the Indian political economy. That's what I was doing. And um, Tyler started getting these incredible applications from India. And he's always... I don't know. He's he knows what's going on before anyone else knows what's going on. I know how he does that. So he felt something special is going on. And he would send those applications to me and say, hey, take a look at this and take a look at that. And then I think for a couple of them, he was traveling maybe and couldn't schedule the call with them. And, you know, we schedule it really quickly from the time an application hits the system. Uh, so I think I did a couple of those calls with them and I gave him my feedback.
0: Right. So this and is like even before April 2020? This is def- before
1: April 2020. Yep. I think this was like fall of 2019. Yeah. I moved here in November mm-hmm. 2019. So, you know, thereabouts. And uh, so I would give him my feedback and... He said, Oh, we should, you know, do an EV India and you should look at these applications. And I was like, That's a terrible idea. I don't know anything about talent. <laughs> I don't know anything about anything. I don't know anything about philanthropy. I don't know anything about startups. So that's my natural reaction to these things. And I think around the same time, we got a small grant or a tranche of money just for India. Uh, I don't remember the exact dynamics of how that worked out, but um, I think it was like $100,000 which was given for Indian talent or something like that. And Tyler said, you choose for this. Uh, and I said, okay, $100,000 does not seem like a huge amount of money. And if I screw it up very badly, you know, it's not the end of the universe. I'm not tanking a program or anything. It's a few bad bets. So I can test it out. And so I started doing that and COVID hit. And suddenly, you know, Mercatus was also doing Fast runs. It was also doing COVID prizes. And there was just so much work to be done to support COVID initiatives in India. And I was kind of really looking at it, both as a researcher and also just, you know, as a commentator on what's happening in India, that I just got into that world uh, through that network and then never stopped. And apparently I pick good talent, but I, if you ask me how, or if you ask me how Indian (laughs) talent is different from Western, I'm not trying to be difficult. I honestly have no clue. (laughs) I have no clue what the thing is.
0: The question was, how is Indian talent, identifying Indian talent the same as identifying Western talent? I've
1: never identified Western (laughs) talent. So I honestly don't know. I guess, I mean, identifying all talent to some extent is the same. You're Hmm. looking for very similar qualities, Hmm. right? Especially for something which is a moonshot uh, sort of uh, grants program. You want people who are a little bit different from yeah. what everyone else is doing, people who think differently, people who pursue bigger questions, people who have massive amount of ambition, lots of hustle, who have an imagination and who dare to think a little bit differently from others. I think those things are very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ever attend an EVN conference in outside of India, you'll notice that the people are different, but the vibe is very similar. And this also surprised me and Tyler. Uh, the first EV EVN conference, both of us were surprised that, oh, it's the same vibe and they're all weird. (laughs) We don't know how or why, but they are. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think that's what unites all of them. Right. Yeah.
0: So I looked through all 130 winners. Oh,
1: wow. I should do that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And my impression was that there seemed to be a way higher proportion of, I guess, pro-social projects than among EV grantees at large. Maybe like impressionistically more than 80 percent of the projects were pro-social. Is this correlated to you as a talent selector, to where India is at as a country at the moment, like the whole extensive versus intensive growth thing, or to historical contingency because of COVID and and a lot of grants going to solve that problem, something else? like What is that correlated to?
1: I think two things. The second part of EV's mission, other than the moonshot part, which is absolutely true, is we also like to fund grants and ideas that are unlikely to receive funding easily. Right. And in India, a lot of the pro-social stuff doesn't end up receiving funding as easily, especially in the early stages, even if it's for profit, because an obvious app for one more thing on your phone is much more easy to get funding for or raise money for than solving air pollution or solving the problem of recycling plastic or something else. So even though these are, even though the proportion of for-profit companies in the pro-social part of EV India is incredibly high, like virtually very, very few of them, other than education, there are hardly any that are not for profit. Uh, But much harder for them to find funding. Mm. So I think that's one part that it is correlated to. These were the people who were doing something different from the usual, just another SaaS company, just another SaaS startup in Bangalore, which looks like a browner version of a SaaS startup in Silicon Valley, or maybe not actually, they all look about the same. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, uh, which is going to get relatively easy, you know, venture capital funding. That that's Our group is slightly different from that. The second, the way in which it's correlated to me, I think, especially when I think a little bit more deeply about this, I think it has to do with my research. So one of the things that I've found in my political economy research is that in India, the state is kind of upside down, right? The state doesn't do law and order, you know, externality problems like air pollution, providing all your basic, you know, sewage, clean water, recycling, picking up garbage. The state doesn't do that stuff. But the state provides like, you know, free LPG natural gas cylinders or like free toilets or something. So it doesn't do a very good job of providing what are standard economics public goods. And it ends up providing private welfare entitlements to very large numbers of people. And there are historical reasons for this. There are political economy reasons for this. But a consequence of that is that a lot of the public goods gap in India is filled in by the private sector. So you were talking about how you visited Gurgaon. Uh, Alex and I, Alex Tabarrok and I have a paper on this, on how Gurgaon is basically like this private city, mm. right? Uh, everything, I mean, in Gurgaon, the number of private security personnel are like a hundredfold more than the the state police machinery that that provides security. So in every aspect, the private sector stepped in, whether it was electricity, whether it was water, whether it's law and order, right? The fire station in Gurgaon is a completely privately owned owned fire station. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I went and met the fire chief there and I was talking to him and I said, why did you have to start a private fire station? And he kind of chuckled and he said it in a very Indian colloquial way. So I'll try to translate it. And he said, you know, we have billions of dollars worth of investment. We have high rise buildings. The government's fire station is fighting with pitch which are water pistols. <laughs> Whereas we actually have like, you know, very large rigs, which have like 80 foot ladders and rigs. It can actually put out a fire <laughs> in a high rise building. This is a very entertaining guy. Um, so. So this really comes from that point of view, that. In India, there is both a very high demand for private sector solutions for all these public goods and public bad problems, like private, like poor families spend a large chunk of their disposable income on private education, even though there's a free public school right next to them because it's so terrible. They spend a large proportion of their income on getting water through private tankers because the government water service is rubbish. Uh, they buy private air purifiers, especially in New Delhi. All the slums have now started getting some kind of air purification system because their kids keep falling sick. So I knew that there's a market for this stuff because I had studied it. And I also knew that this generation, I don't know what what they're called, millennials, young millennials, Gen, Z? Gen Zs, yeah, the Gen Z v- entrepreneurs in India, They want to solve all these problems because they can't breathe, right? They're tripping over garbage the moment they walk out of their house. So even though they're relatively privileged, they have engineering degrees, you know, some of them are like building amazing hardware solutions. They want to solve these problems. They don't want to make just another gadget for rich people. And I somehow managed to put together the fact that there is a consumer market for it. And there are people willing to do this for profit. Mm. How do we make sure we get them started? Whereas I think a lot of the venture capital firms just didn't fund them because they thought there's no market for it. Like we have an incredible company called Pran. They make hyper-local, you know, air pollution solutions. They tried for Y Combinator and I can't remember who, but someone at Y Combinator who's probably sitting, you know, somewhere in Northern California or something said, but is air pollution really that big a problem at scale that people will buy this stuff? Oh, wow. And today... As we are speaking, right this moment, the AQI in New Delhi is like 590 or something. Yeah. No one can breathe.
0: Can I just quickly interject? I picked up, um, I don't know, it was the Hindu Times or something when I visited Delhi last year and was reading it at breakfast at Juggernaut. Yeah. Very nice Southern Indian uh, restaurant uh, in in Delhi. And I, I took photos of this because I was trying to learn about what, issues concern people. Like every second ad in this newspaper was about air purifiers. There you
1: go. Right. So there's a huge market for it, but someone who is either venture capital in Silicon Valley or venture capital in India, but heavily influenced by venture capital in Silicon Valley is now going to wonder why would we fund such a thing? The second problem is hardware solutions take very long to go from you know, very early product development to MVP stage, right? Before you set up a manufacturing unit and then you can do it at scale and so on. So they need much more early stage support. So they all came to Emergent Ventures Hmm. and I was happy to pick the very best of that talent. Fantastic. So some of that is correlated to me, but I think that's the best explanation I have.
0: That makes sense. So, if you'll recall, after the Southern Indian wedding themed dinner on the first night of the unconference, uh, you, me, Tyler, and one other person were having a conversation. And this person asked Tyler, What are the three things that all EV winners have in common? And Tyler replied that they are number one, smart, number two, determined, and number three, a little bit weird. And I couldn't help but notice a fourth attribute ar- among the Indian grantees. And I think the best word for it is earnestness. Yeah. Is this your experience too? And is that related somehow to the higher proportion of pro-social projects or is it separate?
1: I think it's separate. I think, so, you know, these people, the, the group that you met in Chennai, if they were in the United States or Australia or in the developed world, they would have been scouted. They wouldn't need EV, and they wouldn't need me. They would have been chosen as the super talented in their middle school class. They would have been in a high school STEM incubator. They would have been in college incubators. Someone would have picked up, picked them up somewhere. And both in the scouting infrastructure in India is non-existent. And the incubation infrastructure, which is nascent, is a little bit broken. It's quite broken, actually. So a lot of these people are incredibly talented, but there's nowhere for them to go. And there's no obvious channel that will put their faith in them. So you, I mean, this won't be surprising to you. The way I end most of my EV calls, especially the successful ones, is the first thing they tell me is, thank you for believing me. They don't even say, thank you for believing in me. It's just, oh, you understand the problem I'm trying to solve and you trust me and you truly believe that what I'm doing is important and valuable and all the things that I believe. And I think that's where the earnestness is coming from. No one else has quite recognized that. People who have recognized it haven't supported it Hmm. because we don't have an obvious channel to support it. So it, it ends up looking like a group of people who are very earnest and have enormous amounts of gratitude for that community because they kind of got their first big sort of boost of you know, not just funds, but the faith in the fact that their project is doing something valuable from there. And uh, the second is, I mean, you must have noticed this in India. Uh, India is very ageist, OK? For a country as young as it is, it is remarkably ageist in a very damaging way. So only 7, 6.5 percent of the Indian population is over 65, right? Uh, Two thirds of Indians are below 30. And yet we don't have faith in young people. We don't believe them when they're trying to do something weird. We don't give them the funds, all the money, all the privileges end up going to the super credentialed, super experienced older people, right? And I think that's the other reason why that's happening. Right. And I think that translates into earnestness in that group setting, which is everyone has so much gratitude. Everyone has is so sincerely trying to work on something. They see that sincerity mirrored in everyone else in that community. And as a group, you're absolutely right. It, that, that seems to be one of the cultural sort of norms in that group.
0: Given the low opportunity cost, does EV India market itself in no, India? No. Why not?
1: Uh, I think part of the EV test is that they find us. Right. We want the people who are up at two in the morning who have exhausted every other thing who are scraping the bottom of the barrel on the internet and then end up with us and figure out that, oh, okay, I will fill this form too and see and take my chances and figure out how to get it done. I see. I think that's part of the test. And I will get too much crap if we market it and the signal to noise ratio will be stupid. The numbers in India are too large and the opportunities are too few.
0: It would become unmanageable. Yeah trying to filter those applicants.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, they, they'll they be easily filtered. I can tell the crap quite easily. The the terrible applications are very easy to spot. But it's still a huge imposition on the system and everyone who manages the system and then the server that accepts the application. All of those things start becoming a little bit nutty. Yes. Yeah.
0: Roughly what percentage of Indian EV winners do you think heard about EV because they were already marginal revolution readers or inhabit those kind of intellectual worlds?
1: In the early cohorts, virtually all of them. Right. Uh, So like probably the first couple of cohorts, everyone was an MR reader or they knew an MR reader or their parents were an MR reader and that's how they found out about it. Uh, The later cohorts, very few. They Mm. started getting into MR only after they won Emergent ventures, and they found out because you know, they are in networks of entrepreneurs or people who are doing these, you know, social projects and education sector and so on. And then you go on LinkedIn and someone's written an EV gratitude post or something and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, that's an interesting opportunity. And they get in touch and say, oh, I think I should apply for that too and stuff like that. Uh, the best advertising we have for EVs EV winners. They are so proud of that community. They talk about it at different fora and that ends up. Uh, pulling a lot of people from different places. My personal fear when I started doing EV was all my friends are going to come and ask for money.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, friends and acquaintances, right? Because India is this tiny world. The Indian elite is like a few thousand people and we all know each other and it's terrible. So I was very nervous about that. And the thing about EV that's thrilled me the most is I didn't know most EV people before I gave them the grants. I don't know most EV applicants and they come from places that are unusual our ratio of people from smaller towns is better than any scholarship program in India. It's crazy how many people come from small towns. They move very quickly. They figure out the moment they get the EV grant, they're able to move to Bangalore, which is necessary, right? You need to plug into a bigger system. But a lot of people who are non-native English speakers, I've done so many EV interviews in Hindi because I can see that there is difficulty in expressing themselves and they're getting very nervous about that. And I will just immediately, I'll start speaking in Hindi and then they will get comfortable and they will switch to Hindi. Right. So I've done that loads of times and they're very talented. So it's it's never mattered. And most EV people also didn't know each other when we did the first EVN conference. So I know that this is not an echo chamber, you know, where everyone comes from one small network of MR readers or everyone came from the same incubation program for startups yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So it's quite diverse. And I'm I'm happy to take... I, I take a lot of pride in that.
0: Yeah. I couldn't tell from the website, but do you also accept applications in Hindi? Like the written application part? I don't think so. You only get English.
1: Yeah. We yeah. only get English. Yeah. 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 Easy enough for most people. There's Google Translate. Right. So I never harshly judge an application for not having great English. Yeah. Uh, so that's on me. But there are enough online tools that people can you know overcome that barrier in India.
0: Right. Does being the kind of person who is an Indian that reads blogs like Marginal Revolution also correlate to having talent in some way?
1: I think it correlates to being weird yeah. in the sense that they're not reading the usual stuff that their peer group is reading. Um, the MR reading, I have a funny story. Oh, yeah. This actually happened at the Chennai conference. It happens now at every conference. So, People are always curious, oh, how did you meet Tyler and how did you get into Eevee? This is always a story that people ask me, all the EV winners, and I have to tell it again and again. So I say, oh, you know, I met him in such and such time, many moons ago. And how did you know about him? I was reading Marginal Revolution. They're like, oh, when did you start reading Marginal Revolution? And I'll say something like 2005 and they'll say, oh, I wasn't born then. And then that's when I just like my heart thinks <laughs> and I'm like, okay, then I guess I'm old and <laughs> you are younger than my marginal revolution brain. Uh, I've been reading it that long because I mean, a lot of them are younger than 19 years yeah. uh, or 18 years. So, uh, and and MR also celebrated its 20th anniversary in Chennai. In fact, they recorded their 20th anniversary podcast. there, So it was just funny. Hmm. Uh, but I think it does correlate to being weird. Okay. I don't think, it means that they are any more talented than the next person. And nor does it mean that the people who don't read MR aren't talented. It's just they operate in a different group setting. Okay. And they've read different stuff.
0: Yeah. Why are so many chess grandmasters from Tamil Nadu?
1: I don't know. I think it's because of Vishyanand. Okay. Okay. Uh, because what ends up happening in Indian sports, and you know, you don't just see this in chess. Like, you know, you'll see a lot of wrestlers coming from Haryana. Uh, And so, what ends up happening is the Indian sports infrastructure is extremely broken. And if there is a success story from a particular region, then the people in that particular region are like, oh, if he can do it, my child can do it. Oh, he started a new coaching center for wrestling or cricket. Oh, let's send my kids there. Mm. And they obviously know the system they know how to enter international championships and so on. And then all their students and, you know, get plugged into that. And even people now who want to be wrestlers outside of Haryana know that that's the best place where you're going to meet the most competitive wrestlers in India. So let's go there for six months and get trained and so on and so forth. So I think that has that anchor effect, uh, not just in um, uh, in chess, but in A lot of sports that are not team sports, you see that in shooting, you see that in archery, you see that in uh, lots of archers in India, unsurprisingly, come from the Indian Army. (laughs)
2: Mm.
1: Right. So there's obviously clearly a cohort of people who train for that. There's an intergenerational or like an institutional memory on how to do this, where someone can guide you and mentor you. And I think uh, Vishy success just cracked that space open. And the second thing is he's been around for so long. When I met him in Chennai, I told him, I was like, you ruined my childhood because you would be, I mean, he's not that much older than me, maybe 10 years, uh, maybe 15. And he started playing when he was a teen. And there used to be Hindu newspapers, children's magazine was called Young World. And he'd be featured in that every other week because it was a fortnightly magazine. And our parents are like, you can't even get 90% in your math test. Look at this kid. He's a (laughs) grandmaster. I actually told him, I said, you know, you effectively ruined all of our collective childhoods. (laughs) Like for all Tamilian kids, you know, from a particular area whose parents were reading the Hindu. Um, The recent pool of talent that you see from uh, Tamil Nadu, they are all actually, they've all been mentored by him at his chess academy. Wow. Uh, Maybe not all of them personally, but they've been through the beats of his chess academy. The chess academy was very much part of scouting their talent and incubating their talent and making sure they have the means to go to all these different, you know, sort of world uh, championship platforms and they end up playing a lot. So I think that has, uh, his effect has a lot to do with it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So one third of Indian chess grandmasters are from Tamil Nadu.
1: Doesn't surprise me for that reason. Tamil Nadu is also one of the richer states. Chess is a rich yeah, it's rich a, school child's yeah. sport. Yeah, You need a good education system for it. You need a particular kind of incubation. Um, increasingly now you need excellent internet and digital infrastructure because so much of chess playing is happening online. Right. Uh, you need good computers. So Tamil Nadu also checks all of those boxes, yes. right? Unlike like some remote village in the Himalayas where you have like sketchy internet connection.
0: Or even, even like Uttar Pradesh, the state you yeah. told me that yeah. I should visit yeah. uh, on my next trip. 200 million people, eight Australias, yeah. um, but no, not a single Indian chess grandmaster.
1: Yeah, they have bigger problems.
0: Very poor state. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: The day they produce uh, a few chess grandmasters, that would be lovely. It yeah. means their GDP per capita has risen to a level yes. that sports are encouraged and kids have good schooling. Yes. And chess is part of the package. Yes. That's the big thing, right? It's part of the In any sport, uh, the sport has to be part of the education package, either from the family or from the school. Otherwise, how else do we get introduced to this stuff? So no sport is played by poor, poor people in India. It's always, at best, it is lower middle class. Yeah. You know, we have some success stories in cricket, especially where you have people who are literally playing street cricket. And they got scouted and they got picked up and so on. But uh, very, very tough for stuff like chess.
0: Hmm. Where are the talent hotspots in India at the moment? You mentioned Bangalore. Yeah. Are there any other ones?
1: I think all the big cities. So, you know, Bangalore, Mumbai, New Delhi, Chennai, because they have the infrastructure to attract both the human capital, the financial capital, the physical capital, all of it, right? Yeah. You can easily get office space. You can easily get other people to move to that city to join your startup and so on. So I think those end up being natural hubs. Um, Outside of the big cities, uh, I see them from everywhere. But they very quickly move to one of the five or six big cities.
0: Yeah. Where are the underrated hotspots?
1: Pune. Okay. Uh, Pune, Nashik, you know, uh, sort of they're like a couple of hours from Mumbai. Yeah. They end up being very interesting. Uh, The big cities in Kerala, unsurprisingly. Um, Where else have I got? Increasingly, I think we have a couple of winners from Bhuvaneshwar, which is in Odisha, which is a relatively poor state, but it's the capital city. It's the largest city in Odisha, so... That's a place where I've gotten some interesting applications. I'm very thrilled about that. But they leave Bhuvaneshwar the minute they get the ground. Yeah, but largely big cities. They move to the big cities very quickly.
0: Right. One of your recent grantees, Ray Amjad, is prototyping scalable tools for finding and supporting the lost Einsteins and Marie Curie's of the world. Yes. Um, I love this mission. I've often ruminated on this question over the years because obviously it's a tragedy Both for the individuals and for the world when such talent is wasted. If you had to choose, where would you search in India for potential Ramanujans? The villages or the cities?
1: The villages. Because in the cities, there's a much higher chance that they are getting scouted. Uh, It's not a hundred percent chance. Uh, there's still a decent probability that they are they belong to a low-income family. They don't go to a great school, but if you're Ramanujan level of genius uh, in a big city, someone will spot you, you know. Uh, but if you're Ramanujan level genius in a village, it's very tough even now. But you know, I wouldn't go looking for the Ramanujans in the first place. Like that's not my big thing. I'm thrilled that it's Ray's big thing and I completely, I 100% back him. I'm thrilled that he's doing this. But I think if this is now speaking only for myself, if I have such a specific goal, I would worry too much about the trade-offs between the type one and type two errors, right? The false positives and the false negatives. Um. I worry very little about false positives. I'm like, okay, so we gave someone a grant who didn't turn out to be a Ramanujan, that's fine, which is why I run Emergent Ventures. But false negatives are a very big problem for me. I would not want too many false negatives. Whereas when you're picking Marie Curie's and Ramanujan's, you don't want any false negatives because you want only the geniuses, right? So I think that's a fundamentally different project. I think it's worth doing, but I'm not the right person to do it.
0: Wait, just let me get that clear. So when you're finding the Ramanujans, you don't want any false negatives because it's like finding a needle in a haystack, right? Yes. But you don't worry so much about the false negatives?
1: I don't because I'm like, okay, we didn't find the Ramanujan, but I'm pretty sure we still supported a very talented individual who maybe didn't turn out to be a genius, but did a lot of social good. So the way my mind is sort of geared towards the question I'm just interested in a broader breadth of talent. And I worry about misallocation of talent more generally than picking that really special gene. I don't even know if I'd know how to identify them. Right. But Ray has a much clearer picture of what he's identifying. So he's the right person to do that.
0: Yeah. If you know what I mean. I should talk to him about this. I'm yeah. interested in He's this. great.
1: He's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Let me um let me offer a pushback to your point about you would search in okay. the cities. So I had Stephen Wolfram on my podcast recently. No, I said
1: I'd search in the villages.
0: Sorry, yeah. Yes, Let sorry. me Let me offer a pushback to your point that you would search in the villages. So I had Stephen Wolfram on my, on my podcast recently and I asked him how many potential Ramanujans go undetected in the world today. Uh, and in his answer, he made the point that to become a Ramanujan, you actually have to have a certain degree of development. And and like Ramanujan himself went to decent schools and yep. learn, learned maths.
1: Same school as my father-in-law. Oh, really? They were both. I think the the head boy or whatever is like the most, the highest scoring individual of their cohort. So my father-in-law's name is on that long list many, many, many decades after Ramanujan. Oh, how cool. But it's a thing he is deeply proud of.
0: Right, because Ramanujan was from Tamil Nadu. Yes. Yeah, yes. of course. But Wolfram's point was that like without that education, your Ramanujan-esque abilities can't reveal themselves. Yes. So I was wondering, given the different educational attainment levels in rural India, where about 900 million Indians live versus the cities, um, maybe that would actually factor against searching for Ramanujans in the villages, because people don't have sufficient education to um, reveal their Ramanujan-like abilities.
1: Fair, but I don't think what you are saying and what I'm saying are that different. Mm -hmm. So let me explain. I think a certain level of education, I mean, the the whole search for a Ramanujan is conditional upon that. But let's say that there's someone in, uh, and you are right that that level of educational attainment is more likely in a city, right? But the trouble is in villages, the scouting infrastructure is missing. The eyes that can spot the Ramanujan is missing. So conditional upon the same kind of educational infrastructure in like maybe a poor slum in a city versus a, a, a reasonably decent school in a village, you are much more likely to spot that talent in a city than in a village.
2: Okay. Because so.
1: you will have better teachers in the city. The class size will be larger in a city, right? There will be more competition. There will be, you know, rich people in the neighborhood who will say we're having a scholarship for like the math talented kid from the poor family and so on. So all of that exists in the city much more than it exists in the village. So conditional upon a Ramanujan existing, less likely to be found in a village, which is where I would look. But you're absolutely right that it's more likely that a Ramanujan would exist in the city in the first place.
0: Okay, that makes sense. (laughs) How many of your interviews have you done in person or are they all over Zoom?
1: Virtually none in person actually. Yeah, very few in person. Any at all? Maybe one or two because of COVID and I don't live in India. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think there was one person who was visiting Washington, D.C. when they had applied. I didn't know that they were in Washington, D.C. So when I set up the call, they said, oh, I happen to be in this area. Do you actually live near George Mason? And we met at Northside Social, which is right here and had coffee. And another one, I think, just before the pandemic had broken, Tyler asked me to speak with someone when I was in India because he was evaluating them. Mm-hmm. So I think just a couple of, I, I can literally count on my fingers right. in one hand how many.
0: Do you worry you miss any information by not meeting no. people in person?
1: No. In fact, they would do worse if they met me in person. I'm. Oh, interesting. I'm impatient. You can hang up. You can get out of an awkward situation more easily yeah. when it's over the phone. I don't even do video calls. I just like plain, simple audio calls. I don't want visual cues. I don't want anything. I just want to just old school talk to a person, get a sense of who they are. Interesting. Yeah. But that's more about me than the talent.
0: Okay. Does that mean you're bullish on remote work?
1: No. Okay. Not at all.
0: Right. No. So there are other reasons counting against it. Yeah, but
1: I don't think applications everywhere in the world have always been remote, Mm. right? Application selections, admissions processes, Right. Yeah. Other than like the first two years when Harvard was set up, when everyone came from the neighboring area, yeah, it's not like we do admissions in person all the time, right? Yeah. So it's always remote. Got it. We found good ways of figuring that out.
0: Okay. How much of the application assessment is judging whether you actually find the proposed project or idea valuable as distinct from the person's talent and their ability to deliver it?
1: Every time I have picked a winner because I like the project, but I wasn't sure of the person, it has gone horribly wrong. Hmm. Not horribly wrong. Basically, it didn't turn out as I would have hoped for. I don't think any of my grantees have gone horribly wrong. No one scammed us. No one's defrauded us. No one's run away with the money. No one's done evil with the money. So <laughs> it has gone horribly wrong, but it hasn't gone as I expected. Every time I have picked the person even though I was not 100% on the project, it's actually gone really well. Right. Because talented people very quickly figure out what they're getting wrong. Yeah. And they solve for it. And EV is very flexible. We don't need them to submit a plan and then stick to that plan and then submit revisions like the San Francisco Housing Board or something. right? <laughs> so we're quite easy that way and flexible. So I would say that in my earlier winners, the first few months, I was focused a lot on the idea and not just the person. And the longer I've done this, the more I care about the person and their qualities and less about the idea.
0: Right. So as someone who's a relatively new talent selector and hasn't for all of her bets seen or many of her bets seen like a full cycle, um, how do you know whether you're taking the right amount of risk?
1: This is a funny question. So very early on, maybe like first six, seven months that I was, you know, picking EV India winners, Tyler came and asked me and he said, your India winners are great. They're all succeeding. Are you taking enough risk? <laughs> Where's the failure rate? And I thought about it really carefully. So I went back and and that's a very Tyler question to ask. No one else would ask that question, right? If things are going well, usually they leave it alone. So I went back and actually looked at all the people that I didn't give the grant to and said, why didn't I give it to them? Was it because they were too risky and they were too out there? Or was there something else that was problematic? And oddly enough, when I had done the assessment that time, none of the rejections had to do with riskiness of the project. It had to do with Just the person not having a very fleshed out idea. And most of the times, actually, it was because it wasn't a risky enough project. It was just too cookie cutter, boring. Do we really need one more of this in the world kind of rejection? And then I was like, okay, I'm comfortable with the risk I'm taking. But I would say to a new talent scout, it's useful to keep doing that exercise every six months. Hmm. I keep going back and looking at my rejections. Yeah. And then looking at was that the right call? And why did I do that? And do I still feel that way six months later, having done more grants and so on and so forth? Interesting. So I don't stand by all my winners necessarily, yeah. Because, you know, with time, you know which ones didn't work. But I do stand by all my rejections. Right. Not because they weren't talented. Actually, even the rejections for Emergent Ventures is an incredibly talented group of people. Hmm. It's usually they're not working on moonshot ideas. They're working on something quite basic and boring, likely to be funded by something, someone else. And oftentimes it's like, oh, just another boring paper on topic X that is already boring and overloaded with nonsense. So,
0: yeah. So, I imagine at some point you'll do follow-up analysis on how the grants have panned out, whether that's those kind of six-monthly reviews or something more sort of formal and substantial. When that happens, what concrete metrics will you be looking at to assess success?
1: So a few different things. So I'll start with just the winner's pool, you know, not looking at the rejected pool. But I do think it's important to pay attention to that. If I'm doing like a full assessment, I should also look at the bets I didn't make. And was that the right uh, call? But just talking about the bets that I did make, um, I think the first thing I would do is if the project roughly as it was stated, does it exist? And did it manage to sustain itself? Because we only give money at a very early stage, right? So an important test is the market test, right? Did they manage to get to the point where they wanted to get? And did Emergent Ventures help them succeed in getting to the market test and then succeeding or passing the market test? I think that's one, you know, this is especially for the for-profit people. I would really look at that. Do they exist? Did they raise other money? Did they become profitable businesses? Many of them have already become profitable businesses and raised other money. Then I would look at the cases where that's not true. That is either they didn't, they didn't succeed with that project or they abandoned that project or they tried the project and, you know, something went wrong. And then the next stage I would look at is, did they continue to be entrepreneurs? Sure, that didn't work, but did they do the next thing, right? And did they succeed at the next thing? Because that tells me that my talent identification is the right one even if the project identification was the wrong one, right? Because we are in the talent business. We're not a venture capital company. We are not actually taking a stake in the projects that panned out Mm. and then turning a profit out of that. So given that we're philanthropists and we care about talent, I would care about, was it the right talent? Am I happy that we supported that talent? Did they go on to do something amazing next, even if the EV grant failed? And, um, that would be mainly for the for-profit people. For the not-for-profit people, I think I'll have to come up with a better metric of how to, how, you know, in each sector, it would be a different metric for how do you judge talent in that sector. Because you can't quite compare people, you know, who are playing a team sport with someone who's running the 100 meters race or something. So I think I'll have to come up with a rubric, but I don't think it'll be a very difficult rubric. I think success in each sector kind of announces itself. uh, And you know what it looks like or what you were hoping for. And I think I'd follow that instinct. But I'll definitely do that exercise. It's worth doing. And once I finish that, I think I'll go back and look at the rejection pool.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Yeah. And see people who did really well. And after they did really well, I mean, I think a lot of them would do well, but that's not how I would think of my own. um, I wouldn't think of that as my failure. I would think of it as, was that a grant that should have been EV, yeah. you know, and then like work through that? Would they have been valuable to the community? Are they doing something that other EV people are doing? Did, they, did I just not see it? So I think that's what I'd like to look for.
0: Right. It'd be interesting how much of them doing well is endogenous to being rejected. Like it sort of put a fire in their belly and they thought, oh, I'm going to prove her wrong
1: but you know, I think a lot of them would do well. And honestly, I Mm. say this all the time to EV winners. They always come and tell me like, you know, again, the gratitude thing, right? Oh, my God, we exist because of you. And I'm like, that's absolutely untrue. One of the remarkable things about EV winners is that they would be doing what they're doing even without EV. Mm. It would be a little bit harder, maybe Mm. a lot harder for some of them to raise early stage money. But every single one of them has the ambition and the hustle to have gotten where they need to get because of VV. So I don't think we help them succeed in a huge way. We give tiny sums of money. I think our main input is the belief that we think that they can do it, so now they think that they can do it. Yeah. Uh, the, I don't think my, you know, no one knows me, really. So it's not like my opinion is like this really important opinion that if I say they are not talented or they got rejected, they think... I will prove them wrong. <laughs> they probably just think it wasn't a good fit. And that's usually the case. So right. I don't think anyone's out there. I mean, if I can put fire in rejection pile's belly, I am amazing and, <laughs> and much more influential than I had originally imagined. But I would be surprised if that's
0: the case. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so... The reason that emergent ventures unconferences are called unconferences is that the attendees set the agenda. So yes. it's a very organic, bottom up kind of yes. Hayekian process yes. where we all put like post-its on this whiteboard where we suggest the topics of the breakout rooms and then you can choose which rooms you want to go to and you can also just get up and leave halfway yeah, you through vote a session and yeah, you vote with your feet. Um so I've never been to a US unconference.
1: It's exactly the same.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And and I spoke to people who had had been to those, but I'm, I guess I'm thinking here in terms of the flavor or the culture of the conference, not necessarily the format. Um, you can correct me if the premises are wrong here, but I I seem to observe two differences between how I imagine or heard the U.S. unconferences operate and how I experienced the unconference in Chennai. Um, the first was that, and this is where, so, you know, while I was like universally impressed by the attendees and like the one-on-one conversations I had, I was probably like very mildly surprised to the downside with the breakout room discussions. And so there were two, two things I observed. One was that the topic seemed to be like a little more generic, kind of like self-development type, what does success yeah. mean, style topics. And the second was that People really stuck to the topic, and the yeah. the conversation didn't like drift or or yeah. digress and I was wondering what is you know if you had to boil it down, is the cultural dimension here like individualism versus conformity or or what's the the relevant dimension and, and I guess yeah. i would I would apply conformity to the first observation in the sense that I guess like people are choosing those more generic topics because they're kind of like being altruistic in a way and like second guessing what they think other people will want to hear rather than being unapologetically weird like most Americans.
1: I think that's part of it, but I think it's also got a lot to do with politeness and hierarchy. There's a little bit of nervousness about putting a topic that's really out there and weird that that you think no one will be interested in, Then no one will come to your session, then everyone will judge and think, you're crazy. Whereas the US EV group, if you post a topic, which is so out there that no one came to it, they would think it's a win. (laughs) Like in a group of weird people, they are the weirdest of the weird people, right? Uh, Or like two people came to it. They're like, oh, we're the same kind of weird. And that's clearly more special than the generic kind of weird. So there's a confidence issue and a conformity issue for sure. But I think the other part of it, and this has been worrying me about EV India more generally is we have an education system which is very unidirectional, right? Mm. You study these six things and you succeed in school and then you study these six things in college and you succeed and so on. And there isn't a lot of focus on very broad reading I'm talking even in the most elite schools, you read the things that are that you're told to read to get the grades in that class, and then you carry on. So a lot of the learning that the young people in India are doing is off the internet. And it's not necessarily by reading books or absorbing music or culture or scripture or religion or something like that. It's oh, to solve the problem of this hardware design, I go look on the internet and then I also find these six tangentially related things and I sort of master that. And then that's, so they're very monomaniacal mm-hmm. in a sense, which is a typical tendency of builders. And EV India has a higher proportion of people working with hardware and builders, like physically building objects than EV United States. So I think that monomania has something to do with the lack of breath. Um I also think that it's very young, uh, the EV India group. So we don't have the senior people who are philosophers and rabbis and, you know, sort of like musicians. We've just not managed to attract that group. It's not like they all applied and I rejected them. Uh, We just don't have those interesting people. And we do have that in EV United States. Uh, So I think those are some of the reasons the conversations tend to be quite different. I will say this, I don't mean it very pejoratively, but um, maybe a little bit. A lot of EV United States overlaps with the effective altruism community. Hmm. And there it's almost a signaling thing of how bizarre your topic of discussion is. Yeah. It's almost like a bad, I mean, it's, it's um, mimetic, right? Yeah. And then not being mimetic is its own kind of mimetic and, and yeah. signaling device. Yeah. So I think some of the weird topics are not necessarily stuff that people really want to discuss.
0: Yeah, like there's contrarian hot takes that are just super niche for the sake of showing yeah, how smart you are.
1: Yeah, so there's some of that going on, and we don't have that going on in India at all. Right. Like no one thinks that is a, a sign of being cool or elite. Yeah. Thank God for that. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a little bit of that, but you're right. It's much too polite to my disappointment. Uh, they are quite conformist in a social setting in a one-on-one setting they kind of go out there but in a social setting they're very careful they're very conformist very polite Mm. in fact in the first EV, I think for the first half of the day people didn't get up and leave and I remember like Tyler and myself making a point of just getting up and leaving (laughs) mid-sentence almost to show that we mean well yeah we are not dissing anyone we just think there are other conversations that might be more better fit for us. Mm. And then people started doing it. But I think the first couple of hours, no one did it. I got very (laughs) worried. It's like, why are people leaving? Why are we all trapped in this room?
0: (laughs) So I interviewed Tyler on my podcast last year and I asked him how he spotted your talent as a talent spotter. Did he say
1: Indian classical music or something like that? He
0: did indeed. So he he said, your deep appreciation for Indian classical music led him to think of you as a talent spotter. What do you think it was about Indian classical music that was such a good marker of your talent as a talent scout? And can you think of a subject area for which having a lot of expertise would not be a good indicator of ability for talent selection? Like could I could I just go on a 3-hour rant about curtain rod how curtain rods are made? Every word of it could be true. Would that have the same diagnostic value? So one I
1: think Tyler overstates the Indian classical music thing. I mean, I'm not saying he's lying, but I would not put that much weight on it. Um, I think there's more to it. So let me explain this uh, sensibly uh, in a way that doesn't offend you or Tyler or anyone else. I, my mother's an Indian classical musician for a living. This is what she does. She was a member of the All India Radio Symphony Orchestra, the Indian classical symphony orchestra. uh, And that's what she did her whole life. I grew up my whole life with musicians and live music. My husband jokes that I'm like the, you know, erstwhile kings and princes in India, because when I'm in my parents' home, I'll say something like, Ma, leave your door open and I'll wake up to her rehearsing in the morning. I woke (laughs) up to music every day. also learned from her. So I've learned Indian classical music. I'm terrible at it. Uh, But I did grow up with it and I have an appreciation for it. So when Tyler says that my ability to decode Indian classical music is a sign that I'm like brilliant or talented, I just put less emphasis on it because it's to me, it's like speaking Tamil or speaking Hindi. Like it's just something I grew up with. I take zero credit for it. Mm-hmm. It's not like I went looking for a complex musical system and then tried to learn it or master it. In fact, even though every tool was given to me to master it, I couldn't be even basic and mediocre at it. Yeah. So, but I do have a deep appreciation for it. I have a deep interest in it and uh, I love it. It's 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 the most familiar. It's home for me, right? Um, and when we do exchange notes on the kinds of classical music we like, you know, I'm sure he thinks that I've given him a brilliant recommendation, but to me it seems a lot less brilliant on my mind because I probably derive it from somewhere that I grew up with. I don't think it's original to me. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. Um, so that's the reason I think I underemphasize okay. that aspect, right? But I think what Tyler means, or I, 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 now I'm 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 not speaking for him, but I'm just guessing. My hunch is Indian classical music tends to be very complex. Uh, There's a lot of improvisation within a given set of rules and scales and the ability to kind of track that or follow that and appreciate the nuance of that probably means that some, you know, it's a type of person who has an affinity for complexity or who's comfortable with complexity, who's comfortable with a lot of improvisation and so on. And I think that's a good thing for the sort of mind who is scouting talent. Right. Coming to your example about curtain rods, I would love that person, actually. I would pick them (laughs) because someone who is so obsessed with curtain rods that they can talk about it for three hours and not lose interest and is that monomaniacal and driven is going to be amazing on curtain rods. And that's great. If their project is curtain rods, I would be thrilled. But
0: you would be picking them as a talent spotter.
1: Yeah. I, I, oh, as a talent spotter, maybe not, maybe not. But as a talent, I would love them. (laughs) Right? Yeah, I'm. So there's
0: something special about Indian classical music.
1: I kind of think so. Yes. Can you?
0: I I wanted to ask you this. Can you? Can you sell me on the claim that Indian classical music is one of the great cultural achievements of humankind?
1: Yes. Uh,
0: What would be your elevator pitch?
1: It is spontaneous order where the bad stuff has been weeded out and the good stuff has been elevated over a millennia. Oof. So what exists now is great. Wow. Maybe there was other stuff that existed before which was good and got lost or we tossed it or something like that. But what exists now is never bad because it would have been weeded out. Right? Yeah. Against the false positive, false negative thing. Yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Does Tyler know much about Indian classical music? Yes. Okay. Tyler
1: knows much about everything, I think <laughs> is the way I think about it. But about Indian classical music in particular, yes. Right. The very first time I had lunch with Tyler in a restaurant that's not too far from where we're sitting.
0: Was it Mama Chang's?
1: No, it wasn't. Okay. Mama Chang didn't exist that time. Okay. I'm talking in about 2006, right. which was the first time I visited George Mason. And I was a summer fellow at IHS, which is a few floors below us. Um, and Tyler had given a lecture in India, I think, the previous year. And I'd been reading Marginal Revolution and like a good libertarian girl, I attended the lecture and at the end of the lecture, I must have gone and said, thank you, Professor Kaun. That's an excellent lecture. I think I'm coming to Mason next year. And I think he said something like, sure, look me up. I'd love to meet you and have lunch. And I never thought he'd actually do it or remember me when I came here. I did write him and he said, sure, I remember you. Let's meet at such and such place and have lunch. Um, when I met him then... He talked about, so I told him about my mum being a classical Veena player. And he said, I love Balachamir, who is like one of the foremost, you know, Indian classical Veena players that ever existed. So he just went straight to the very best of a very niche instrument okay. that I'm talking about. Like the number of great Veena players in the world is in two digits. Right. Okay. Uh, so... The number of players of Wiener, even at an amateur level, is only in the three digits. So it's not it's not the violin that everyone plays there. It. It's not the piano everyone learns in school. It's a very niche instrument, very old. Very few people play that style, and he knew the best in that.
0: How easy is it, is it to falsify signals, whether your talent is for talent spotting or anything, like talking about curtain rods?
1: I think it's easy to uh, fake weirdness. Hmm. And a lot of people are doing it. Hmm. Uh, And because it's so easy, it's also become easy to spot who's faking weirdness. (laughs) Uh, So I think that whole like, oh, I will be crazy. I already know this person loves, you know, someone who's listening to your podcast eventually applies for you. And they're like, oh, Shruti would love if I'm crazy deep into a topic for three hours. So let me try. I think that's fakeable. Why someone would want to do it beats me. But sure. Uh, I think it's also spotable. I actually think my best skill as a talent scout is what I learned teaching economics for so many years, which is people who bullshit. Hmm. As a professor, you know, three questions in if someone's bullshitting you or not. And yep. that's the exact skill that I use in every interview. People who unravel three questions in are definite rejects.
0: Would Tyler say that's your unique edge as a talent scout? never asked him. Yeah.
1: I've honestly never asked him the question. In fact, I still think I'm not good at this and (laughs) he thinks I'm crazy. You're too humble. Not really. It's so hard to judge. Compared to whom? I'm the only person doing the gig. So how do I know if I'm great (laughs) or good or even possible? Literally the only person doing it. That's why I don't rate myself very highly. Uh, But I've never asked him. I can ask him.
0: Is Ravi Shankar overrated at this point?
1: No. No. I think he's correctly rated. He was a genius uh if he's overrated at all, it is as a player, but as a composer, he is still, I think, slightly underrated. Okay. Yeah, especially among the younger kids who may not have heard that yeah. stuff. But he's not overrated, no.
0: Who's one other Indian classical musician I should I should listen to? As someone new to Indian classical music.
1: Do you like uh, instrumental music more or do you like vocal music more?
0: Um let's say instrumental, because I don't think I'll understand the words.
1: No, you don't have to understand it. I just meant, do you like to hear people singing? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I like singing. I don't understand a lot of the words. Uh, Oh,
0: really? (laughs) Sometimes they're they're singing in Telugu
1: or Sanskrit or something. I have no clue what they're singing.
0: Yeah. Okay, then generally I would prefer singing.
1: So in, you know, in Indian classical, there are two kinds. One is the Hindustani classical, which comes more from the north. And there is, uh, you know, the, the Carnatic classical, which comes more from the south. So do you want people who are alive or anytime? Anytime. I think among Hindustani classical uh, singers, the greats are, you know, Bheemse and Joshi, who are always phenomenal. Uh, among the women, someone like, you know, Kishori Amonkar. I can write these names down for you. They're, you know, I mean, anytime you listen to them, you know, this is some exceptional singing talent. Uh, amongst the most contemporary ones, I really like a young lady Um um she's Ajay Chakriparthi's daughter. I can't believe I can't remember her name. You can send That's me the K. name. Yeah. I'm annoyed by myself. I was just <laughs> listening to her yesterday, uh, and she's fantastic. Uh in the Carnatic side, among the young singers, there's a duo. Uh, uh their sisters called Ranjini Gayatri. Uh, just exceptional. I, I heard their concert recently. Uh amongst the instrumentalists. I think uh, in Indian, in Carnatic classical, Lalgudi Raman, he was a violinist, incredible composer, one of the greatest greats we've had. Um, I think we have among the modern day, you know, I mean, you have Zakir Hussain, who is probably one of the greatest living Indian classical musicians. He plays the tabla. Uh, Someone who recently passed away, his name is Kare Kudi Mani. He used to play the mridangam, which is the Carnatic style of playing the drum, uh, with both hands. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a list of names. These are exceptional people.
0: Yeah. I look forward to listening. Um, in what ways could the quality and intricacy of Indian classical music be connected to Indian excellence in tech?
1: Not sure they're very connected. Okay. I think there is a certain kind of complexity in Indian culture anyway. Yeah. And even if you haven't learnt Indian classical music or been exposed to it too much, you might have come across that complexity and, and pluralism in the food
0: mm-hmm.
1: or in, you know, the the multiple languages or the multiple religions or the fact that big cities end up being a melting pot, engineering colleges end up being a melting pot. So I think they come across it in some other way. So it's not clear to me that there is a direct relationship. Some people think so because... There are a lot of software engineers, there's a lot of software talent, especially in Silicon Valley, which comes from certain communities, which are like Tamilian Brahmins, Telugu Brahmins, and so on. And these are communities where you also learn classical music very young, Mm -hmm. right? So we all learned classical music young, even if my mother hadn't been a musician, I would have had to learn it because that's just what these families do. I learned Indian classical dance because all young girls learn it. Uh, So I think there's an overlap, but I don't think it's causal.
0: A few final questions on talent. Okay. What do you think is Tyler's most non-obvious quality as a talent scout?
1: Generosity. He is just incredibly generous. I mean, the project is generous. He's a busy person with so many interests and he could have been doing something else with his time. But he takes such an enormous effort by, you know, not just in terms of looking at applications and things like that, but mentoring each and every person. He is so generous in the follow-up. You know, it's kind of, once you are an EV winner, you sort of always have access to Tyler and me and others. So I, I, I don't know if it's visible to everyone, but just incredible generosity.
0: Yeah. I would have to second that. Yeah. I had lunch with him yesterday. And yeah, just so so giving with his insights.
1: And also just, you know, his effort is always to raise uh, everyone's ambition level. Yes. And uh, the one thing he's incredibly generous with is his belief in others, right? And we come from a culture, especially within the academy, especially in economics, where Actually, belief in others is almost like a low status thing. Skepticism in others and finding flaws in other people and putting them down and showing how you have very, very, very fastidious tastes and you like very few things. That's the high status marker. Right. And Tyler has never been that person. He's always gone the other extreme. He's just incredibly generous with students, with young faculty, anyone he meets, all the EV winners. Yeah. Even people outside of EV that I know who know Tyler well. That's been their experience. Yeah.
0: It's very positive, some yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any points about the general theory or craft of talent selection that you and Tyler disagree on?
1: What would be the craft of talent selection?
0: And that could even be a, a flawed premise.
1: I don't think we disagree on much on the talent selection part. Yeah. If anything, I worry that we agree too much. I always tell him I'm worried. I'm like when he confirms something that I'm trying to do or I'm struggling with, I'm like, do we think too are we too alike? <laughs> do I think too much like you? Should I be thinking differently? Um I don't think we disagree much. Okay. Yeah.
0: So I view you as a talented, a very talented writer. And I noticed that in a lot of your podcast interviews for Ideas of India, or at least in the early ones, you finish by asking the guest about their writing habits. To what extent do the actual details of someone's writing routine matter as opposed to just having a routine at all?
1: So you know i'm I'm glad. Uh, I'm thrilled to hear you compliment my writing because it's very hard even now. (laughs) Uh, I find it difficult to write. I find it difficult to write well. I find it difficult to write a lot. And I always feel like I should be writing more. I should be writing now. I should be writing better. So the reason I'm asking those questions is usually to figure out how to do better myself. So that's where the question is coming from. Uh, I do agree with you that having a routine is more important than the details of the routine. But the other reason I would put that question in is that a lot of my audience is students and people who are writing about policy, who are going to graduate school right now, who are young academics and so on, and they are struggling to write. Hmm. And hearing the same quirk in someone else's routine might be a wonderful thing and say, oh, I do that, too. Maybe I can keep doing that more. Yeah. Right. I also try to do X or I also try to do Y. So that was the reason I had the question. And I have benefited a lot from you know the answers and I have a routine and I try and stick to it as much as I can uh, but I agree with you having a routine is more important than what it is yeah it should just fit the person and it should fit their life and it should do the best for them
0: yeah have you seen this Gwern blog post about writing routines like, no I'll send it to you
1: I, I should read that
0: Gwen looks at about 400 different writers um, and some of the literature around famous writers and finds that there's not really a clear winner for for example for the time of day yeah. portion
1: it just depends or
0: aspect of the routine and yeah um yeah i think like after you listen to a few of your interviews and you realize everyone gives their own version of a routine the kind of straussian reading of that question is like it doesn't matter just do it yes do something exactly yeah. and,
1: and do the do what works for you yeah throw some spaghetti on the wall try a few different things And then once you figure out what works for you, just stick with it and master it, I think is the key.
0: So in our final 30 minutes, some questions about India's economy and India generally Ah, to finish. So Russian expatriates don't seem to give money, portions of their incomes back to Russia, friends and family in Russia, uh, as much as... Indians seem to give back to India, should we view that as reflecting the fact that Indians are just more bullish on their economy than Russians are on theirs? Um, And so they don't perceive it as a money sink? Or how do you interpret that?
1: That would be part of it, surely. I think the other part of it is selection of who's leaving. Right. Because I think in a lot of the communist or post-communist regimes, the people who are leaving are just so off-put by the political or power situation in a given country, they are leaving, they are leaving Russia. They're not getting attracted to the United States. They would have left Russia and gone anywhere else. Whereas in India, it's like we wouldn't leave India if it weren't for the great opportunity that we're getting in the United States. We're not just leaving, right? Um, So I think that's a big question. Did people leave or did people get attracted to the United States? And that's why, you know, Mm. yeah. And I think among Indians, it's a lot about they left for opportunity. Uh, They didn't leave because they were unhappy in India.
0: Hmm. You mentioned earlier that there can be blind spots on the part of venture capitalists with respect to India around things like air quality. But thinking at a, a more general level, what do most Western venture capitalists get wrong when investing in companies in India?
1: They overestimate the size of the market, I think. So the way India's digital revolution has taken place is very upside down, right? So the digital revolution happened in the developed world after they had reached a certain GDP per capita. And then everyone could afford phones and then you could afford like large scale, you know, laying out the fiber cables for the Internet and, you know, all the things that got built on top of it. In India, Uttar Pradesh, when you go to Varanasi and when you go to the poorest parts of Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, you'll have excellent Internet. You may not have water, right, but you'll have it. So the numbers that are constantly thrown around are that, you know, India has 860 million million people or how, you know, plugged into the digital space through smartphones, at least one in each household. And India has the largest number of young people. So an ed tech company has a potential market size of, I don't know, 300 million or something like that. Uh, I think that's a huge overestimate because the number of people who have the Internet in India, the way we think of comparably in the U.S. is only about 25, 30 million. Only they have the same kind of disposable income. Huh. They are the people who watch Netflix, who will get an Amazon Amazon subscription and so on. So I think Sajid Pai uh, had a lovely report on this recently. It's called the Indus Valley Report, like Silicon Valley, but for India. Yeah. So that's the spin on it. And um, I think he estimates that it's about the size of Taiwan. India A, as he calls it. And the the group that has that does quite a bit of spending on on the internet is about 200 million, right? Maybe even slightly lesser. And then the next billion uh, are not really spending that much money on, on these things. So doing another DoorDash and doing another one of the many, another Uber for India, like that's what the VCs are looking at because they think we have Uber here. California is 40 million people. India is 860 million people with smartphones. That is not a one-on-one translation.
0: Total addressable market, huge. Actually, they're just investing in the Taiwan that lives in India.
1: And and even the Taiwan that lives in India, uh, that's smaller than California, (laughs) right? And poorer than California. So now we really need to think about that question. Mm. So I would say that's one thing they get wrong. So what's been happening in in the US is we take all the public goods for, as given, right? You take, I mean, maybe not anymore in California, but largely the fact that there will be clean water, there will be a sidewalk to walk on, there will be basic law enforcement, there will be, you know, some efforts to mitigate air pollution, so on and so forth. There's not like crazy shooting on the street. You have some basic situation under control. That's taken for granted. And then it's about the private sector supplying all those other things. And within that, there's a digital space where the private sector really comes in, right? In India, it's kind of flipped over. Uh, a lot of people, the the private sector still needs to build a lot of hardware design solutions, which are just taken for granted in the United States, right? So those things don't get picked up. So when I say, what are VCs getting wrong? I have to tell you both what they fail or misunderstand, but also what they're not picking. Mm. And I think they're not picking enough hardware solution space. And it's probably because when it comes to software, there's virtually no product risk, right? It's like a few young developers who get together for a few weeks, drink Red Bull, eat pizza, they come up with a software solution. So the real risk you have is market risk. You don't have much product risk. Whereas when it comes to hardware stuff, like, you know, this air pollution device and so on, they think that you have product risk and you have market risk, whereas I think there's very little market risk there. You've been seeing multiple air pollution ads for products, you know, when you just read the morning paper. But the product risk is quite high and they don't know how to understand that because the, the VC world is so plugged into digital goods and not physical big manufacturing related goods. So I think there's a mismatch there. And I hope they catch up soon because these are like $20 bills lying on the table. By the way, even Indian VCs don't capture it. So it's not just the American VCs getting it wrong. The Indian VCs mimic American VCs.
2: Hmm.
1: The people who really fund those solutions are the angels in India. The right. angels have their brain switched on, right? They have built these things before. They know how to pool their money. They know how to de-risk product development. They know how to think about it.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, whereas the VCs are only think about only thinking about product to market fit which is a very vicey influence on vcs more generally not that they got it wrong they've done it splendidly well but it may not have a one-on-one fit for india mm. where you only worry about market risk and uh you think there is no we'll only fund things where there's no real product risk
0: what a fascinating answer yeah.
1: wow <laughs> i'm glad you find it fascinating <laughs> i think i'm stating the obvious but yeah <laughs> yeah
0: well, fascinating to me at least. So if India, if India doesn't catch up to the US's current GDP per capita in the next, say, 50 years, what will the most likely reason for that be if you had to boil it down to its most basic explanation?
1: Bad regulation. And I, when I say bad regulation, I mean in an overarching way. I'm including tariffs and taxation and all of that stuff in it. Okay. Uh, we have very complex regulatory framework which basically breaks down a country that has so much potential for scale and it just like clamps down on that. Mm -hmm. And most of the regulation, because it comes from a period of sort of like socialist hangover, uh, is anti-scale, right? And I'm not just talking about competition laws. I mean everything. Your labor laws are such that they will punish a firm that gets too big because the regulation for firms with over 100 employees and over 300 employees... Is a whole other level of crazy than than one that has below 10 employees. So most firms in India prefer to be small because the regulation punishes being big. And that is very problematic, you know, generally. Also, the more complex you are, the harder it is for small firms, right? So if you both punish scale and you're complex, it means small firms get like you know double taxed yeah uh, because for small firms it's harder to make sense of this crazy world which means then you need to start greasing palms and you you need to spend a lot of money in in corruption money or bribe money to get going so i think that's where i would pin down most of the problems so if we can get the regulatory system which includes tariffs taxes everything right i think india can really accomplish something fantastic Everything else will fall in place, I guess.
0: Yeah. And are you optimistic?
1: About the regulation simplifying? Mm. Not as much as I'm about the talent. Okay. So the talent scouting part of my job is just sheer joy. 100% happy, happy. Uh, the <laughs> the economist part of my job where I'm writing papers on how screwed up, you know, system X is or system Y is. Um It's interesting work to do because the space is so complex and interesting, but it's just filled with pessimism and nihilism.
0: Speaking of which, if we think about progress in India as a sort of race between state capacity and civil liberties, is there an intermediate period over the next several years where more state capacity would actually be bad because civil liberties are simultaneously backsliding or not keeping pace? Are we at that margin yet or, or where is it?
1: We're not there yet. In fact, I think in India and the Indian setup, more state capacity is good for civil liberties because a lot of the harm on minorities and, you know, political speech and all of those things, it's happening because we have these horrible laws which are being enforced in a very discretionary way, right? If the horrible laws were equally enforced on everyone, We're not China. It's a democratic country. The government will get booted out the next day. So the fact that it is discretionary because of low state capacity, because the police doesn't have time to process everyone, because the courts can't get to a case within 10 years, which means they're going to punish people differently. uh, The arbitrariness and the discretion that creeps in is, I think, because of low state capacity. Because if we were high state capacity and doing this, then the rules would change.
0: Right. Is this the concept of India as a flailing state? Like is executive discretion kind of a consequence of that?
1: It is definitely a part of it, but it's not the only part of it, I would say. Yeah. I think the flailing nature of the state has a second aspect, which is, you know, the India is like a very large country run by very few people. <laughs> and that has always been the case. So East India Company, you know, when you read about what, what it looked like after the Battle of Plassey, right? So if you look at, you know, like this is William Dalrymple. I know he's he's been on your show a few times. Uh, if you read Anarchy and things like that, it's like, you know, 250 company officers who are all mostly between 18 and 30. <laughs> like they're like young, rowdy boys. <laughs> 250 of them are in charge of running this country. Mm. And that's how it starts, right? And then, of course, the company develops more capacity, eventually more oversight. And then the crown develops more capacity. But between colonial rule and central planning, it's always been a few hundred people right at the top in New Delhi who are in charge of everything. That group tends to be quite talented. But because that's how the system's always been run, we never developed state capacity at the local level and the state level. Right. So some states have developed more capacity than others, like Kerala, because erstwhile kingdom was the kingdom of Travancore and those princes were very very sort of you know elevated and modern and so on and they developed it but that's not been true everywhere so that state capacity problem of not developing at the lower levels I don't think that just has something to do with discretion or you know the consequence of arbitrariness and discretion I think that's just plain and simple we were too obsessed with central planning we never had fiscal federalism we need to switch to a model where we genuinely raise and spend taxes at the local level. You know, we are genuinely become federal, not just in name. Mm. And I think then that problem goes away. But it doesn't solve the problem of arbitrariness. For that, you know, the statute books have to be changed. So I think there's some overlap, but they're not exactly the same thing.
0: I see. So... In that same conversation we had after the Southern Indian themed wedding dinner in Chennai, uh, Tyler shared this idea that he views Indian history as moving in slow motion. He doesn't see so many sudden turns in Indian history. And India can go centuries without such turns. I'm uh, I'm curious to hear your view on this theory of Indian history. Do you think it's, do you share it and why or why not?
1: I do share it when I look at the past. When I look at the future, I'm a little less certain and I'll tell you why. We've never had a period when all Indians were so plugged into the same digital space. Yes. So very large part of India sort of chugging along slowly and even though it's a monolith, but there's some overlap in culture and we all sort of get along and there aren't too many sudden changes is, has been in a world without this kind of connectedness. Yes and i don't know if the connectedness will change that i'm not saying it will but i think the jury's out on that uh, i think you know the like if you look at the the timor literature on preference falsification and cascading and tipping points and things like that yeah that's become much more possible with this kind of connectedness in india right and so that's what makes me unsure about whether the changes will always be this slow. Yeah. I, I expect there could be sudden changes because of this. Yeah, But it could also flip the other way, right? So you could have change and then people could flip back to the right. status quo. So it's just hard to say. Yeah. I think I think this space that we're in is just too new. We've never experienced it at this kind of scale Yeah, uh, in India. So just very difficult.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So I was going to ask you about how India's massive smartphone penetration might speed up Indian history. Yeah. Because now everyone's connected. Yeah. And and to borrow a term from complexity theory, it's like these phase transitions yes. can happen Yeah. more frequently now. Yeah. So is the historical reason for the slow-moving nature of India's history just the kind of like diversity of India or Complexity Diversity of India, or
1: definitely part of it. Diversity and complexity is part of it because if you're thinking about, let's say, thought experiment, I'm not speaking of any particular millennia or a particular regime. Let's say there are a bunch of people who show up in India who think, oh, there's a nice place to settle down and maybe govern. Sure, they can govern like a s- relatively small area. They become rich. They say, okay, now we need to conquer the neighboring place and the neighboring place and the neighboring place. It's going to take a fair bit of time. And it did take a long time on Saddleback, <laughs> you know, uh, or without cannons or without radio and, and things like that. Uh, it sped up after independence and after World War II because of radio and broadcasting. It was this phenomenal, you know, dramatic change in terms of transactions costs of reaching people. Uh, and we're seeing that again today. So I think the diversity and complexity and just high transactions cost to navigate that diversity and complexity in the past, which is not clear to me is quite the same in the in the future, mm-hmm.
0: given India's vast complexity and the syncretic nature of the Indian mindset, if I can put it that way, um, which i I assume gives many Indians like an innate appreciation for complex systems. At least many Indian intellectuals. Are you surprised that adherents of the Austrian school seem to be underrepresented among Indian economists? I am.
1: Both Austrians and public choice theorists. Because when I was growing up, everywhere I looked, I saw corruption and rent-seeking. And I was Mm -hmm. like, why aren't there more public choice people coming out of India? And the same thing with the Austrians. But I think on the Austrians, I have a better answer which is the the curriculum was completely controlled by the state. So, for instance, when I first came to the US and I started my PhD, the second, I mean, I didn't start my PhD program immediately, but now I'm talking about 2008, 2009. When I started my PhD program, Peter Betke, who's one of the economists uh, uh, at George Mason, uh, and and one of the foremost Austrian economists in the world, uh, he would ask me, Shruti, how do you know so much about the Soviet Union side of the calculation debate, right? And I would tell him, I didn't know it was the calculation debate. I just learned the Soviet side of the story. And I don't think we heard of Hayek in the debate. And von Mises was a footnote. There is actually a footnote in Market Socialism that Langa and Lerner write about, oh, we'd like to thank Professor Mises for pointing out this tiny detail. Never come across these people. And I studied undergraduate economics between 2001 and four. So it's fairly recent. I'm not talking 1950s. Right. So. um, I think they just didn't allow any Austrian thought to penetrate. And now the Austrian economists who are coming out have basically learned it thanks to the digital revolution, you know, all this stuff is available online. Hayek has a huge footprint online because Hayek has captured the imagination of economists and other other disciplines, intellectuals and other disciplines. So, yeah. But it it always surprised me, but this is the explanation I have.
0: Interesting. Okay. Penultimate question. We were talking about the massive smartphone uptake in oh, India. Yeah. So two thirds of Indians have access to a smartphone. And that's gonna to increase to ninety five percent by twenty forty.
1: Yes. That's the expectation.
0: That's the expectation. So like when you compare that widespread adoption today with your experience trying to make telephone long distance telephone calls as a child. So you have For context, you have this really funny uh, Substack post on um, what it was like trying to make those landline calls in the past in India and how that was sort of represented through Bollywood and Hollywood. Reflecting on examples of such rapid progress like that at a personal level, how does that affect your perspective on life? Because I, uh, for me, I probably haven't experienced such progress in my life living in a developed country like Australia. Do you feel you're more of an optimist? You're more positive Some
1: Absolutely. I'm such an optimist when it comes to these things. These sort of things, they still thrill me. Mm. You know, when I go to India and I see like 500 horrible cable TV channels, I wouldn't watch any of them, but it thrills me that they exist. Uh, Walking into a, you know, like a big retail store with lots of different kinds of chocolate, I grew up the first eight, nine years of my life with two kinds of chocolate. (laughs) I remember the first time I held a Kit Kat. I remember the first time I held a Pepsi, right? So that stuff just thrills me no end. I still think it's magical that all that exists in India, that there's so much digital stuff for everyone to consume. So much of it is free. And so so, so much of the consumer goods revolution has been reaching high quality latest technology stuff in the hands of, you know, people who relatively speaking don't have, you know, that high income. So that just thrills me. It makes me an optimist. I'm a techno optimist in that (laughs) sense. I'm a market optimist in that sense. I'm just thrilled by it. Yeah. And I'm a big believer in progress. The fact that we have a vaccine within, I don't know, a few days, the blueprint for a vaccine within a few days, of the pandemic spreading. Even before it had spread globally, we had the blueprint for a vaccine, yeah. right? That stuff just thrills me no end. The fact that my dad and I chatted for an hour about the malaria vaccine being a possibility. That's so exciting. Yeah, because he grew up in a time when, like he knows people who've died from malaria, right? Mm. So it's just extraordinary uh, that that stuff is happening. It just thrills me no end.
0: Final question. <laughs> what are you working on at the moment? And ah. where can people find you and your work online?
1: Ah. I have a website. If they Google me, they'll find me. They find me on Twitter, all the usual stuff. Uh, And what am I working on right now? I'm pretending to write a book. And (laughs) I say pretending because it's slow. It's very slow. I'm writing a book on property rights and eminent domain in India. And I'm trying to understand why... So it makes sense that India didn't have strong protections against eminent domain or compulsory acquisition during the socialist period. Even makes sense that it didn't have it during the colonial period. But post-liberalization, you can't have a market economy built on a scaffolding or a foundation that doesn't have strong private property rights. But in India, the the free market people and the right-wing people who want development and industrialization actually are in favor of willy nilly acquisitions and easy acquisitions, because they think India's rules for changing land use from agriculture to industry to services is just too complicated. So it's great if the state can come in and take land from Peter and give to Paul. Nehru and fellow socialists did it to take land from Sir Kameshwar Singh and give it to poor peasants. Now we take land from poor peasants and give it to, I don't know, the Ambani's and the Tatas and so on. And I just find it surprising that there isn't a deep understanding that to have the kind of market economy we wish to build, you need strong property rights, which includes limits on the state on what they can and cannot take. So I'm trying to trace the history of why we have such bad rules. Why didn't the constitutional framers do better? Once they wrote something down on paper, why did it change from 1950 till now? So I'm trying to do that big picture, uh, tracing that you know question over the bigger picture or the longer arc of history. And it is going very slowly. (laughs) And it is very difficult to write a book. (laughs) So that's been my experience. So that's what I'm working on right now.
0: Well, Shruti, thank you so much. I've learned so much from you. This has been a real treat.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. It's always good to see you. And I love your podcast.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. I have a special announcement to make, which I've buried at the very end of this episode. In mid-December of 2023, I'll be recording an end-of-year retrospective episode where I reflect on the conversations I've had in 2023, what I've learned from them, and how the podcast is going generally. For this retrospective, I'll be the guest, and I'd like one of you, one of my listeners, to be the host and to ask me questions. If you think you've got what it takes, head to my website, jnwpod.com and go to the page called interview joe to apply that's jnwpod.com and go to the page interview joe thanks and until next time ciao